You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. I see on Strava that you're doing uh, your long stuff still in training, but you're also doing some shorter spicy stuff. And we get to butt heads this weekend, which I'm looking forward to in Vegas. But what's the, what's, I guess, just since you started with this, what's the idea behind maybe veering from the ultras a little bit this year and doing some, some shorter quick stuff? Yeah, a lot of it was just practicality for me and because like uh, with all the family and work commitments going on and not having like uh, a travel budget by Spartan anymore that ended a few years ago. So just making it more practical. So like trying to do races that are in driving distance. And I found that between, um, yeah, a lot of the California or Vegas, Arizona races, it's like the supers ended up being, there's a, there's a handful of supers that could be doable and for, with the driving distance. And then there's also the slow super, um, I guess that it got moved to November, of course. And the big bear, I guess now is a super, even though, yeah, that's not my, I have not had that good of, uh, performances there in the past, but, uh, figure give it a shot and then yeah um and i feel like the the speed has been i've been able to hold on to some speed in my getting into my twilight early 40 years now so um are you 40 now 41 yeah you you, you slipped into that gracefully (laughs) yeah my birthday was last day of the 70s so Oh, you're a 70s baby? <laughs> Technically, I've been oh, alive in like, what, like five decades now? or <laughs> Bracken, how close are you to the 90s? What year were you born in? I'm being serious. 87. Oh, you're 87. Okay, plenty of time. So <laughs> I mean, I'm the youngest here, but I'm starting to slip into the late prime years. No, the late prime years are late 30s. That's what I've decided. Late 30s, early 40s. What do you think, Glenn? What are the late prime years? Yeah, that, that's it, it. Shifts for me. <laughs> it went from like back in my twenties. It was like, oh, thirty-five. That's about the peak. But now I'm. I pushed that to late thirties, early forties. Yeah, and uh, now I'm thinking like, okay, I could try to hang on and do pretty good until I'm forty-five, and then I might start really getting uh, doing worse. But uh, you're young looking forty-one though. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, it's it's my half Asian that uh, <laughs> keeps that helps out. Damn you. <laughs> You're another one of the guys that found the sport already in the prime. Mm. And you're on that list of people that you've been here a long time, but it would have been interesting to see had you come in like a VJ or someone, you know, come in at 20 instead mm. of coming at what were you probably 34 when you came in? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, the end of right end of my 33 year. And then right. Yeah. Right. Around 34 is when I got on the pro team and um started it started getting more serious yeah mm-hmm. what was that 2014 13 yeah 2014 was the first year on the pro team my first race actually bracken was there it was in malibu 2013 or yeah malibu oh yeah yeah on that on a muddy day when uh uh yeah it was uh, it was my first one my son who's now seven he was only three weeks old but my wife let me go out and do my first spartan race and uh yeah it started getting all sloppy and nasty and it was like a definite 
look at what Spartan racing is all about because it was nasty obstacles. And especially the one that I remember most is the hoist, the Hercules hoist. Yeah. It's one of those classic ones where you come in beforehand thinking, oh, I'm strong and I can handle that. And then you, you get to a muddy, wet hoist. And uh, yeah, it just felt like three times as much as anything I've trained on at home. So it killed me. And I think I remember it was you, Bracken, right? And Hobie who had trouble on that one. And then Hunter made a move or something. Yeah, that hoist cost me $20,000. How was on that one? No one, no one knows that really outside of my family. I had just come out a month earlier from a meeting in Boston with Reebok and was looking to sign with Reebok. I just come off my best year so far and they had uh, given Hunter and I and uh, anyone else on their roster a $20,000 bounty on Hobie's head because Hobie had been working with them to design the shoe and he worked with them and worked with them and then he didn't like the product they came up with and so he just left and didn't sign the contract with them and didn't give like he just parted ways with them and they were so mad at that they they wanted him to get beat he had never been beat in a spartan distance other than a beast and so they put a bounty on his head and uh hunter and i both went there just to beat hobie and try to cash in on the bounty we were we were leading or we we came in all three of us to the hoist together oh was it okay yeah and hunter got it up and it took me probably a, a minute to get it and hobie Took, it took Hobie maybe like 45 seconds. It was so weird. It was raining, maybe 40. We had just gone through a pond and right. our hands were frozen. And Hunter got, I think, 20 grand. If that if his contract was like mine, he, he took 20 grand for the win that day. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. I did not know that. I, yeah. I ended up not getting the contract. <laughs> so that was, uh, that was one of the more frustrating days I ever had on that one obstacle. You know, you hear about these hoists that people fail like, People don't feel they don't make them like they used to. Even on a crappy day now, it's like these they're lighter or something. Because my first year or two, there were a couple that stopped me in my tracks a couple times, and I had to actually work on them. And I haven't hit anything like that in the last two hmm. years. Have you guys in a hoist? No, it's a couple years ago that one of the um, uh, doing the SoCal race in Lake Elsinore. Hmm. It was against like VJ and Ryan Kent, and like it's one of those where you you learn to go to the uh, the day before the open house, things like this, I like kick myself because, but it's like an hour drive and I'm trying to go there. It's hard to get there Friday afternoon getting mm -hmm. LA traffic, but it's one of those where, well, you know, what, is it worth it to go to an open house? Cause you find out things like, I think VJ went to open house and he knew where there was two hoists apparently that were much more doable. Maybe they're the same weight, but the, you know, what what the sprocket the police, the police, the police, yeah. what something right i mean and i went to the wrong one and like vj went to a specific one and he just ryan kent and i were just like struggling for like half half a minute and then vj does his leaves and then finally kent beats me and then vj and then i catch kent at the eventually throughout the race but vj was ahead and i was like ever since then it was like man try to get to open house if you can i mean that's just one of 10 obstacles you could kind of get an edge on, you know, by knowing not those stupid little things. But Not this year. No open houses this year. Is there no? Okay. I wasn't sure. I don't think so. Was that, that must have been the sprint the next day because I ran the super the day before. Am I correct there? Um, This was the year before. Um, oh, year before that. I my butt on that one. Yeah. It was, I think this was 2018 where that happened, where I got second against BJ and Kent. And then you were there and you were there with the, uh, 
Denmark dudes, and uh, you got you, you did well. You that was the first time I saw you just kind of whoop me straight out on just regular flat running. I'm like, dang, yeah, that was. Uh, we had some rabbits to chase that day. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, of course, you know, VJ ran well, of course, too. But yeah, you were. That was a uh, that was an eye opener for me. Me and Newell like missed our spears that day. This was 2019 SoCal, uh, and. Um, yeah, and that was with Newell doing like apparently no run training leading up to it, like a solid, obviously 2019 year for him. But that was the race they debuted the thin stadium style spear throw targets at. Oh yeah, it was the the first race they've ever done that, and that cost a lot of people actually. <laughs> that thinner target. Yep. Yeah, reminds me of the old uh, what was it Bracken back in like I think it was the 2015 Breckenridge Sprint. That was the first time they didn't they didn't have that material, but they went vertical style on the hay bale. And uh, you and I did we were lucky on that one. But those what was it the first five guys? I think we were the only two in the top seven or eight that came in and hit it. Maybe nine. Yeah, right. That was one of those ones where hey, I, hey, I I beat Alvin that day. That's all I can say. That's right. <laughs> Tom, I ever. Close. I think that's my only win against him. I think so. Yeah. And he quit, I think, after that pretty much, right? You know, he's just, he didn't even yeah. try. Whereas, like, Atkins, he's still barreled down for what? He still got third, right? Pulled a third he, out? Yeah. He came out of burpees as I hit, and he outran me to the bottom of the mountain <laughs> after doing 30 burpees. <laughs> yeah. That was my first time running downhill against Ryan. Oh, okay. He was still relatively new in the career. I hadn't been near him at world championships. Like, he was so far ahead of me. Right, right. I had never run against him in a in a mountain race where I was still near him. And I found out that day how good he was downhill. Huh. Yeah. Well, here's, here's how good he was. I, I've said this before, so I'll go through it quick. But at the top of the climb, I was with, I was ahead of him and right behind Albin. And we got to the spear throw at the bottom and he finished his burpees as I hit mine. <laughs> <laughs> so he, from the top of the bottom to the mountain in a sprint. So we're not talking a 10 minute descent, put, an entire burpee lead on me on just the descent. Minute and a half. <laughs> oh, um, man. Yeah. Yeah, that, that was the eye-opener day. Yeah. Wow. Glenn, Glenn we, should, we should talk about you, Glenn. What do you think <laughs> about that? You're our special guest today. <laughs> I am, Bracken, I know you know Glenn, like, long, you guys have been in this longer than I have, but when I first came in, um, you were, like, you know, you were already established as, like, the man. You were on, I remember going and pulling up the Spartan Race website, and they had a pro team tab, right? And you clicked on the pro team, and I would just, like, lust after all the people on there, like, oh, my God. And you were on that list. You were on that select pro team list. And so I, I had known you early on without knowing you. And then I remember going to the World Champs my first year. Kirk, in 20 I'm going to interrupt you one time. Yeah. Because a lot of our listeners only know the protein what it is today. Yeah, go ahead. I just want to clarify that when you talk about that protein list, there was it was a select. There was only on any given year eight to ten, maybe twelve people on the team. It wasn't a it wasn't a big thing. Yeah, it wasn't a free for all, or it wasn't. There weren't tiers to it. There was just there was the team, or there wasn't. And Glenn was one of those originals that was on the team. Okay, yeah. So so I'd seen you, Bracken. I believe you were on that website as well. Um, and uh, and then we went to the world champs, and you finished top ten with basically a leg that fell apart because you jagged a rock. And I saw a photo of you at the finish line with a leg dashed open. It looked like your flesh was flopping over, 
And I was like, this dude is a bad ass. And I didn't know you yet. I finished 58th that day. I was, I was an afterthought. Right. So, um, so that's where I started to know you from, but what I don't like knowing, and we, you know how we like to do this. I know you listen to the podcast, but like, I know nothing about your background. I know nothing about how you became the stud that you are. I had no idea you're actually 41 and still competing at such a high level in these mid and late thirties. So like, as you know, we do, I, I want to know where this started. Um, and Bracken, I don't know how much of this, you know, either, but, um, where, like, have you been a runner your whole life? Where did it start? Where'd you grow up? All that stuff. And like, what led us into this stud Glenn race on a Spartan race pro team, uh, you know, in the day we know. Yeah. Um, yeah, I haven't been a runner my whole life. Like growing up, I was, I, the only type of running I did, I think freshman year in high school, I did some sprinting cause I thought I was fast and I was pretty shrimpy. I was, uh, one of the youngest for my grade, you know, with the December 31st birthday, I was ended up being almost a year younger than everyone else. And I was pretty short. And I, one of those where I thought I was fast because I played soccer growing up. And then once high school rolled around, uh, I felt like everyone was hitting puberty a year or two before me. And uh, I got not even in the scoring heats when we did our track meets uh, and that was that was an eye opener, but then I just continued. What was it? Um, soccer ended at the end of junior high, so I got into like snowboarding and roller hockey, and so that's my connection with Albin. Maybe uh, there's something special about <laughs> roller hockey. I think you've identified it. Yeah, <laughs> and roller hockey. Yeah, that's the connection. But um, it was yeah. I played some of these. See what happened in my high school. In uh, Valencia, California, Heart High was like really competitive with football, basketball, and baseball. They had all these athletes, and I could only compete if I would like even track. They were the football guys would go out and like do warm ups and whoop me. So I was be like, okay, well, if I get into a roller hockey league that's not part of the school, or you know, get into snowboarding or aggressive rollerblading, right? People might not know what that is back in the mid '90s, but it's like jump down stairs and go on rails on your rollerblades. But uh, I got into that stuff, and you have the rollerblades with the the grind hole cut out in the bottom. Oh yeah, grind hole, grind plates, nice. and really baggy. I think I got a size forty four waist pants, so I could fit all my pads, knee pads under <laughs> underneath my baggy. Were they Jankos? Yeah, yeah, th that style. Yeah. Everybody had a, a pair. You were a little young for that bracken, but everybody had a pair of Jankos. No, I couldn't afford Jankos. I had Lee pipes. <laughs> Lee pipes were the knockoff Jenko. Oh yeah. And so it wasn't until, um, let's see, I don't know, college. I was just doing like intramural ultimate Frisbee, that kind of stuff. Um, some weight training, um, just to keep me basically fit. And I got into surfing when I went to during college at UCSB, but still no real, um, in no interest in running until after college, I started, um, getting into surfing more, but I'm like, well, I started working as an engineer in 2001, um, up in Santa Barbara and I wanted to keep my weight down. Cause I'm sitting in an office now all day instead of skateboarding to class. And I thought, okay, I'll, I'll do some running. So you were just a classic SoCal boy. You were just surfing and skating and yeah, you were just living that life. That was the the stuff I really like to do. Like, yeah, I had a mammoth season pass from like late nineties into the early two thousands. And, you know, I'd take a six hour drive just to snowboard for half a day, you know, up in mammoth. Um, 
Hold on. So you just to stop you real quick. Yeah. Um, so you didn't do any organized school sports after soccer ending in junior high. Then you were kind of like out in left field, skating in the parks, pissing off, you know, <laughs> business owners and ride, grinding curbs and stuff. That was Glenn Race back in the day. Yep. Yep. I, that was pretty much it. Yeah. I went down a, this kinked handrail once at our community college and I tripped and I landed right in the middle of my shin. Actually only like six inches below my uh, 2016 Tahoe Biff where I had mm. those, that, that gaping uh, hole in my leg. And, uh, then I, right after I fell and like most, some of the most pain ever. And then like their security guard booted me out of there and I had to limp my way off the community college. But, uh, did you embody that life? Like, were you into the, the small petty stuff and getting into trouble or, or were you the glut we all, we know now? No, it, it was different. I, um, well, like speaking of petty, stuff, I got caught for, my friends, we started getting into shoplifting and yeah. we were in the, I would go to sports chalet and steal like roller hockey pucks and like the blade for your hockey stick. We'd stuff them underneath our huge <laughs> Jinko jeans. And, uh, <laughs> I, and eventually I got caught one day from, from uh, a drugstore stealing like <laughs> dumb stuff. Like, uh, um, like, uh, I, I remember floss was on the item. It was so weird. I just would, and it would, we, we didn't need it. It was just, and so actually that was one of the things like I think junior year in high school, like getting caught for shoplifting, like kind of started to, uh, I don't know the, the things like that kind of started to get me to turn around my <laughs> lifestyle around that time. But, um, but no sports wise. Yeah. We were just messing around, jumping on curbs, doing things like that for, um, high school and yeah, nothing even organized in college either. To make you feel better. Do you know that I was in elementary school and the neighbor kid I really looked up to, he was a year older than me and super cool. He had a rat tail and he convinced me to go to the, the gas station and steal something with him. And we stole a pack of Slim Jims <laughs> from the gas station and we ran out of there so fast. I went to our little fort in the woods and I felt so guilty. I couldn't even eat them. <laughs> so, I, so I left them in. So you weren't alone. I, I had my, my dabbles. The, the thing I can't with you is like, I think of you as like, Glenn, if you're not one of the most damn pleasant guys to be around, I don't know who, who is, right? And you're like an engineer, family man, like a very like you're a student of this sport. And I just, I don't know. I don't know why I find this super endearing that you were like grinding rails and stealing height hockey pucks. Bracken, <laughs> what do you think about that? Did you know this, this back side of Glenn? No, no. This, anytime I think I know someone, something gets turned up. <laughs> <laughs> I, I only picture Glenn with his big, like, Glenn has one of those big white smiles, right? His mm -hmm. teeth are just, they're always flashing. You can see Glenn from anywhere because he's always grinning. And I guess I just picture this skinny, baggy jean kid just grinning as he's caught with a <laughs> hockey stick or a, a, a pack of floss. Hey, I would, I'd like to say it, it ended there, but I will, I'm going to come, you know, full disclosure during, even during the, um, uh, races uh, there has been a couple times where i i have um in ocr races i i have done things i wasn't supposed to do there's two instances <sighs> i know of so you know i i didn't completely conform to my ways you know <laughs> change after that are you gonna confess what these things are oh yeah yeah i'm i'm open to i was thinking about like yeah i'll I'll share. I've never, I've never shared these things uh, with anyone outside my wife. So yeah, I'm, I'm 
good too. Yeah, uh, there's so there's two that I'll think of, and I'm not going to throw anyone under the bus. <clears throat> but um, both of them, I was with uh, one other person. Uh, one of them was a team race, and one was just uh, an individual. The first one was in um, 2017 Palmerton. Um, I went off course there. Did you? Um, that's, Is it me? What's up? Did you go off course with me in Palmerton? It wasn't you. Um, it was with someone else. Where it's one of those where I'm more guilty than the other person because it's one of those where you had to do a little hairpin. To the right. You had to take a hairpin turn to the right. Guess yeah. who went straight there? Me. You did that too? Yeah, I did. Took two okay. people with me. <laughs> okay. Well, maybe you were. I, I know for sure I was with one other person. Um, and like, but I think they were, I, I was more like knowing what was going on. And they were like, where do we go? Because we were all, we all started. Go yeah. Okay. So that's actually no big surprise. Like, because, so I guess I wasn't the only one, but I, but I knowingly, so I admit, sorry, everyone, I'm not the saint, if anyone, <laughs> but I knowingly was like, oh crap. Because, but everyone else, like, I think it was Killian and Woodsy were already up above. And I think, as we were already crossing over, we were looking down and I did see like, okay, like we should go underneath that tree down there, but I didn't do it. And I knew it and I blew it. And I had to, I, I cheated in that sense. And uh, I brought in along someone along with me because the other guy was like, I don't know. You know, he just like didn't speak that good English and he didn't get the directions as much. So I was like, Oh, uh, um, <laughs> you know, maybe uh, it's, he doesn't know what's going on. He had that excuse. But for me, I knew it was going on. I was just like, I don't know, maybe we didn't have to, or maybe that's something else. And, you know, you just, I rationalized it. So, um, yeah. And uh, I ended up taking uh, fourth in that one. But, uh, shoot, wow, I guess there wasn't even prize money. I feel like, man. Bracken wasn't there, but I don't think you were there. You were commentating that race, Bracken. So I will, oh, say yeah. in your I will say in your defense, Glenn, so what happened is it was a double black diamond descent. We had done with, we got done with the sandbag. We got done with monkey bars, and then they bombed us down the hill again. And halfway down that descent, there was a hairpin turn to the right that went back into the woods ah. off of like the ski run. And it there was no signage. It was horrible. So from my experience, I'm actually going to let you off the hook before people get mad at you because we bombed down that hill, and suddenly I hit like nothingness. And I looked to my left, and there were people running, and there were those red signs with the arrows on them. Ah. And people were there and I saw Gawiski and Gawiski was in my sight already before he was beating me. But anyways, and then somebody was shouting at me from the top to turn around. So I hiked my ass back up the double oh. black diamond to where we went off. But if somebody hadn't shouted to me and I had Jesse McChesney behind me, I know that for sure. Huh. I very well would have probably just cut to that, that arrow, not knowing what I had all missed. Okay. Yeah. So, I will tell you that I've never gone off course other than that once in my history. Oh, really? Knock on wood. So it was a very confusing situation. So huh. yeah. I'll soften it for you a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I've had a, I remember 2014 Virginia, I had a bad one. Me and David Megita went way off and uh, Robert Coble let us get away with it though. It was funny. He, he called us back and said, because Hunter and Matt Novakovich already went by and they were uh, like 10 minutes ahead for one, two on it. And when they ran by a couple minutes ahead already, Goebel's like, we went down after we cut the course on accident and Kobel's like, no, no, you got to go back up. So we ran back up for a minute. And then he's like, ah, okay, never mind. Just come back down, come back down. And then Megita ran back down and I'm like, what? I'm like, I don't know. I'm just going to play it safe. And I like ran all the way back up 
And then I come at the end afterwards and Megita and like James Appleton and someone else was like, they finished these three other four other guys finished ahead of me because they agree. Like they heard Coble say that. And like, I was just like bummed. Cause I was like, Oh man, I had third place to fight out with Megita, but then I ended up in like sixth or seventh. Uh, so you held on to that for four years and finally seized your opportunity at Palmerton to balance the scales. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no there, it, it wasn't balanced. I've gotten myself lost. Me and Botris got lost in 2016 Palmerton a couple other times too. So yeah, I've made a lot more dumb mistakes than I'd like to admit. It's, but those were, yeah, those ones penalized me. But then, um, okay, so my second thing that um, I feel bad about and I never talked about because I was – you know, I didn't think um, I'd ever want to talk, but it doesn't, it doesn't matter at this point, but it was world's toughest mother. You're going to feel so much lighter after Exactly. This you know, it's like you guys are like a priest. Seven Hail Marys to our fathers. And then and then you just have to make sure, you, you know, you have to let me beat you this weekend if for some reason I'm not in front of you already. And then everything will be fine. The the karma, the... the <laughs> um, <laughs> It, world's toughest mutter. It was the only time I did that race with the the team. Uh, the you know four. There was four of us: uh, Gawiski, Trammell, and Woodsy. And um, it's one of those where it we didn't end up getting any money after all. Uh, Two thousand, you know, after we the, the Woodsy thing. Woodsy thing. So, um, so it's not as bad as if you know. But it, I did. A, I messed up on that funky monkey obstacle and it was only our like i don't know forget what loop it was on but it was early on where it was it's this like period where i felt like there was something where they didn't make you do a, a the penalty loop if on certain laps or something like that because they just started the obstacles but something happened to where the team in front of us team germany or something they um uh they we saw them fall and they just like kept running through and they didn't do the penalty loop um, but we saw into other individuals do the penalty loop and then we were going, the guy I was with did the obstacle and, but I failed it, the funky monkey. And then, but I think we were, the German team messed up too. I'm um, throwing them under the bus, but like we should have done that penalty loop and that year for world's toughest for that obstacle, that was a nasty penalty loop. They actually had an ice bath as one of the obstacles within that single penalty loop along with like a three quarter mile run. But, um, so I, yeah, I still feel kind of bad. I, we, I kind of was like, we were mentally played it like, oh, well, maybe they still, the team in front of us did, maybe they're not forcing us, they're not enforcing the penalty loop, but why would they do that? I don't know. So um, I cheated there. And so bad, that, you know, bad on me. So anyway, that's off my chest. What are we talking about? <laughs> Kirk, Kirk, do you have anything you want to get off your chest? Yeah. <laughs> well, this just spawned something. I'm like, we need to do like an athlete confessional every episode. This needs to be like, everybody's got them. I've done things un unknowingly, like where we probably deserve a confession through races. I, this would be a really good segment for us to open with. You, you have to then lead by example. If you want people to open up, we can't just bring them on here and crucify them. I'm not crucifying Glenn. I know you want to, I know you want to go somewhere with this. No, I don't. I'm, I'm curious. Do you have, have you cheated? There, well, there's two things. There's intent, right? If you cheat by intent, which let's say in Palmerton, like it's not like Glenn's like, where on the course can I cut some, can I, you know, stick it to the man? It was an accident, a really, really shitty marked course in that position. So it's like the intent, right? So that's what I would say. Okay. Um, no, I, I, 
for me, I I think you know my first race I was DQ and I, I I got busted, but I think I realized in hindsight when I completely went by the Atlas Stone carry, um, and then just ran right by and didn't do any of it, realizing that that very well was an obstacle there. There was an obstacle table set up with volunteers there. Nobody said anything to me. There were flags blowing in the wind that I just completely ignored and blew right by it, knowing very well that something needed to take place there. It was my first race ever. I didn't know what. And then I continued. I saw Mike Ferguson in front of me and go whiskey and still Killian. And I was like, oh, there they are. Screw it. And I went blowing past the Atlas Stone with no care in the world. (laughs) But I got caught. And I didn't really know any better. I was confused. I didn't know the obstacle. But that's that's really the one for sure that stands out to me. Ignorance and uh, naivety, maybe we'll call it. That's it. You got nothing, Bracken? Bracken, you cheated the over-under and through once. You're a cheater. Well, I mean, no. It was my very first race, and there were no rules yet. Yeah. I didn't cheat it. I hurdled the under and then negotiated burpees with the official because it oh, was 2011. <laughs> no, I, you negotiated like 15 burpees. I think I did 10. <laughs> you can't just make up a burpee number and do it and move on. It was 2011. <laughs> uh, I've I cheated twice. My uh, in 2012 World Championships, I took third in the Beast in the Ultra Beast, and during the Ultra, which was just a second lap of the entire Beast course, this is probably mile I don't know 21, 26. Who knows? It, it was probably 26 at this point, and it was the Tyrolean Traverse across the lake in Killington, and mm-hmm. I got up to it and I was slurred because I didn't remember. I didn't take any food or water out for my second lap. My first lap was 259. My second lap was 440 because I bonked and I'm slurring. I'm tripping and falling. I'm stumbling. And the volunteer must have assessed that there was an issue with me. First lap of the world championship race. It was a mandatory obstacle. You had three times to complete it or you were out of the race. Second lap for the ultra beast. It was a burpee penalty. So I got up to it and she said, can you swim? And I tried to tell her, I can swim, but I don't know if I can swim right now. <laughs> but I was slurring so much, I couldn't like actually get the words out. And she's like, just go around, go to burpees. And I just jogged around the pond and I sat there or stood there just looking, like, staring at the ground because I didn't think I could complete 30 burpees at this point. I've been out there for now three hours without food or water <laughs> after having raced for three hours. So I was just in this terrible spot. And eventually... Um, I, there's a group of guys there and they said, we're racing. We can offer you help. I said, okay. <laughs> and so a guy gave me a power bar and I just ate it instantly. Oh. He gave me another one and I ate it. And then he gave me a third and he's like, just take it for later. And I'm like, thank you. And it just, a wave of energy hit me and I just took off up the mountain. And I didn't do my 30 burpees. You guys are terrible people. <laughs> now, about a half mile later, I stopped and did burpees when I, I got my senses back. That's funny. But in the moment I would have cramped and maybe quit the race if I had to do burpees. So that, that was one. And then uh, in Asheville, 2015 or 16, I was at a national series race. I was in a battle with Ryan Atkins for third place in the race. Killian and Hunter were gone and he and I were going back and forth for second or for third. And we got to the sandbag carry and they were big sandbags. And it was the pancakes and he got his and he's passes me and goes downhill ahead of me and I pick mine up and I feel sand go down my back. So I knew there was a hole in it. And so I flipped it up and on the way down, I, I matched him stride for stride. I'm like, I'm just going to keep this up. It'll be fine. Cause I should just toss it back. Say, Hey, take this out of the pile. There's a hole in it, but I'll just keep it up. I don't want to lose time. And I got to the bottom. We started climbing and he just went 
right ahead of me. And so I flipped my sandbag upside down and I let the sand trail out of it. And when we got to the top, I probably had six pounds of sand in my sandbag. And, uh, and he still gapped me on that carry. And so I tossed it back to the guy. I said, oh, there's a hole in this one. Who back. hasn't had, I've had two sandbags with holes in them leaking out. Have you ever oh. had them, Glenn? Yeah, I've had a couple. Yeah, yeah. I was going to be honorable. And as soon as it got hard, I flipped the hole to the bottom and I let it drain out. That's good. And I've never said that to anyone other than him. I told, I told him later, I said, hey, I had a hole in my sandbag. <laughs> Look what you started, Glenn. Look what you started. Confessional corner is going to be a thing. Oh. I would like to clear my chest actually on one other thing now that I'm thinking of it. Oh. I have one legit thing. The Atlas Stone was a little bit of ignorance and naivety, but my second race ever was in Red Deer, Canada, and they had something called the Hobie Hop there. Hmm. You know what the Hobie Hop is? Do you remember that? Hobie yeah. Hop is a very thick rubber band that you have to squeeze your legs into and then hop a course through like logs and stumps and it's actually really annoying and taxing you have to like bunny hop across things it's terrible and my my band broke halfway through the hobie hop it just snapped and i don't know the rules there but i just kind of one-footed it and kind of fake hopped through the rest of it and went on my way so there it is my band broke in the middle of the hobie hop and i cheated the second half of that but what does a guy do right yeah i mean it's kind of like the broke if they give you broken sandbag or bucket with a hole in it and or like sandbag with a hole in it that is a tricky thing so i don't even know if the rules specify if you you know if they your sandbag starts to leak out a little bit halfway through or a band breaks three quarters of the way through your hobie hop is that your fault you know i don't know that's a tricky one and the, the probably the right thing is to do it all over again that's the rules on the bucket now if your bucket lid comes off and you lose your, and you can't get it back in, you have to return it and do it again with a new one. Since, since we're on cheating though, okay, and then going back to your story, but like you watch these Spartan race lives, right? And Bracken, we've had off off yeah. air conversations about it. What happens when Atkins hops on the Z wall halfway through the first board or on Helix? Like you're not even grabbing the first two blocks. You're just hopping on wherever you feel like on that first side, for example. You see that stuff all the time right somebody tosses like i watched who is it i think josiah madow just tossed his bucket from like five feet away out of the pile where i was in, under the impression we had to set it down under control those things happen all the time so to say like corner cutting watch the replays you can pick out a dozen instances where the pros are cutting corners right mm -hmm. mm, yeah what do you think about that stuff <laughs> i think we're justifying to make ourselves feel better <laughs> maybe maybe uh this was a good tangent yeah yeah it, it is a tricky one because unlike other you know just like running events there's so many more variables that can uh be in play here and i'm definitely one where you know i'm like like our you know like the irs and our taxes you know i want to be legal but i want to be able to take every advantage i can while still staying legal and um yeah i think it's it's good what you're saying you know it's good to what you're saying about like the z wall you know um where i looked at that recently because i did notice you know the, the mm -hmm. utah last year i think it's utah maybe big bear i think but we're like starting on the second set of blocks um well technically you know and but then it's like yeah and so it, it's good to be aware and uh it's, it seems like there's so many little things when you're in the heat of the moment that can, uh, yeah, you know, make something like that, make you kind of tweak that a little bit. But I guess, yeah, I think that that'll go into what I'm 
eventually I like to talk a little about like with my training now with like being very like race specific. And then like when you could actually like VJ or some of these folks who, and myself a little bit like making your own obstacles. And then it's ideal, I think in that way, not just for training, but then you could practice doing it right. Hopefully like legally and as well as like being more efficient when you're being specific on your training like that. All right. Mm-hmm. So to get back on track, we'll just summarize. Glenn's been stealing and cheating since he was in middle school. <laughs> <laughs> so now you're in college, you're post-collegiate, you're working as an engineer and an office job. And to avoid gaining weight, you start what? Bracken, this all started from you. Were you like part of that skater boy mentality where you were stealing crap? It all spawned a, a 20 Listen, minute. I, on a I, can sp- <laughs> I can spot a convict when I see one. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, um, yeah, like after, um, after college and trying to keep the weight down so I could, uh, surf on my little potato chip surf shortboard. Um, but I realized I wasn't that good at surfing. And when I jumped into some of these like local, like Wednesday night, uh, five K's in Santa Barbara, it was pretty fun. And they have a state street mile, which is in June every year. Um, in Santa Barbara, which you run down State Street, which is kind of like a lot of these, you guys, you know, probably familiar. There's some around in your neck of the woods where they have these mile races. And this particular one, a r- mile road race, you know, and it, this one's just a straight shot like some of these. But it just actually has probably like one to 200, 100 to maybe 200 feet of downhill um, overall um, decrease. Uh, downward slope and so it's a fast one so i did that for a few years and by 2007 i got my it's a pr but it's a downhill course of 412 but um i worked for a cup a year or two to get my you know get the speed to get down there starting at like 430s and work my way down and so that was always a proud achievement like of and that kind of got me training for that got me into the running scene more so then i stopped surfing and snowboarding so much um and i got more into running like in 2005 six seven and got married in 2006 so it made certain things like going out on the weekend to go snowboarding in mammoth from santa barbara not as practical doing a six-hour drive each way you get married and then we were, uh, yeah, it does. And my wife wasn't as into some of these extreme sports. So, uh, but she did like to go for jogs and we trained for a half marathon together. So I started slowly easing off on these other sports and, um, I had some success in running. So I kept on with the mile training. And at that point it was like mile and, and then also 5k. And I wanted to just kind of shave off my 5k times. Um, I started out in like 2008 around like 18 minute 5k or, um, 18, 17 minutes. And then I was stopped doing the mile so much. And I started, uh, just doing 5k and up until around 2012, 13 did that. And I got to like a little bit, uh, mid 15 minute, low 15 minute 5k. So that's like four fifty to five minute pace on my uh, 5k run which for a non-traditional upbringing runner i don't care if it's downhill 412 you still have to run 412 and 15 20 15 30 those are times that the average person can't run even with ideal upbringing and training so it clearly you had something there yeah i mean i guess it just i don't know i want i 
kind of put, I am the type like many of us are who get into like on the, the pro team or like really into particularly with the Spartan pro team or someone like folks like us where, you know, I'm just very single track mind, you know, and I just get become solely focused on that. So if, if now surfing isn't my thing, I'm now maybe surfing for off training for running. And now everything is focused on the running. And so, yeah. And I think it's, it's great. Yeah. Once the, you know, the hard work pays off and I guess, yeah, maybe, I don't know. There's maybe some genetic aspect to that. If, you know, with the nurture, nurture, nature benefiting to be able to achieve those times, but you know how it is like when you're in racing um, at that point, and this is in like 2000, like 12 and 13, where I'm at the end of my running and right before starting and getting into obstacle stuff, I was a race on a race team in San Diego area where we, now just moved with uh two kids and i'm on a race team with all these guys running i mean one guy was like a 343 1500 meter guy so that's right around a four minute mile these other uh really great athletes who were like sub 15 5k so yeah it's funny how that is right you surround yourself with folks who are like that and you feel like okay i know i'm fast i could win a 5k race if no one good's there um but, you know, I still need to get sub 15 if I really want to do good in these road 5Ks. And that competition definitely helps when you surround yourself with those guys, racing with them every couple weeks, doing cross country, like 5K, 10K um, season with this race team. Um, made it definitely help to, um, uh, yeah, get that uh, grounded knowing with the fact that like, oh, a 16 minute 5K is like slow. <laughs> when everything becomes relative. So, um, yeah, I was on like a race team down with San Diego for a couple years. Um, I want to know, I'll interrupt you real quick. Yeah. Sorry. I, I want to know like you're, I I've like, like a three or four year time period where you're like blindly training and going from an 18 minute five K or to a mid fifteens five K or, or like before you found this racing team, like where, where did you learn how to train Glenn? Cause it doesn't sound like you had anybody helping yet at the time. Yeah, I definitely didn't. I would like go on my lunch break from my engineering job and just like, oh, I'm training for a mile. I'll just like, like no warm up. Well, barely little, like half mile jog, if that. And then I just like run full out for a mile. I'm like, okay, that's my training. <laughs> and then like, and then just jog like a little quarter mile back and not stretch, you know, like your typical, like, I don't know, for me, it seems like a typical mid twenties, I don't need to barely stretch. I didn't have any soft tissue problems yet or anything. So I would yeah. just do that. Oh, go back to work and sit in my cubicle for four more hours. You know, like, sweet. I did my mile training. I'm better at the mile now. And that went from that to, um, you know, these props don't matter much on the audio, but I had like a, I started getting into Jack Daniels and learning a little bit about some just the, those fundamentals you know uh, like just these prints certain just principles that was the first running book i bought oh was it yep that okay. exact same jack daniels third edition or sixth edition whatever it is yeah exactly and it's great because i mean you see how like my particular i have three of them, three of them now but this is the first one that i had i think and like it's just marked up for uh you know all the different you know i'm learning about like the the v dot and how 
like you want to train learning like the training paces and all that stuff. So I kind of got a lot of those principles down like, oh, okay, rest periods. It matters how many intervals you do and you want to do these hard intervals at certain paces, tempo or these middle effort for a certain amount, like a, his typical 20 minute tempo run, you know, or, and then easy runs and how that's actually important to the whole mix of things and how eventually learning like, oh, wow, running at your max heart stroke volume, you know, which is only like 65 or 70% of your max heart rate um, is actually the best, like, that's a great pace to go because your heart, you're getting a lot of that cardiovascular and like those type of things learning early on helped me to kind of you know, get the training a little bit narrowed in to like start getting from that 18 to 16 and training a little bit smarter. Um, but as far as the training aspect, see, and then it was from 2000, it took me a lot of years. What was a lot slower. I was a lot slower to learn on was the, like the recovery and the, the, the pre and post stuff with like stretching, um, dynamic stretches, and things like that and then like using foam rollers or all, all of those um, like things to help post run it i had to learn those kind of things the hard way sadly by having an it band issue um i've had sciatic nerve issues when i started going anything over 50 miles a week i started having pain on my hip or my right um knee above my right knee and um yeah training with the wrong shoes, all sorts of stuff. I kind of had to learn a lot of that the hard way without having the coach. Maybe that was a thing where having a coach to kind of guide me with a good coach would have been good with those kind of things from like high school or college. But uh, yeah, um, and that kept me from increasing my miles and maybe getting to certain potentials back in the early days, like eight years ago in 2013 when I was really starting to push my training, where I started kind of, you know, you reach your a plateau of like, well, crap, every time I hit 50, 60 miles, I get hurt. So I guess I can't run. I guess I got to run 40, 50 miles. And I could only do th this. I, I thought my ceiling was right here, you know, and it took a lot of physical therapy visits and learning um, from some of those guys. And eventually that coach on that team that I was with uh, learning a little bit more about like recovery and how that works. And, you know, at the same time too, you know, I'm, I'm starting to become, I'm like 33, 34 years old at that point. And my body, I, in my mind, I think it, take it as like, oh, my body's starting, I can't like handle it. And I don't bounce back like I used to maybe 10 years ago, like thinking back to my one mile training days. So I have to be a little, uh, yeah, I have to think a little more about how I structure, not just my training, but all that other uh, peripheral aspects for the, to the running. And um, yeah, so that was me then. And uh, around 2013. And that's when I made the transition that year to go um, when I saw American Ninja Warrior was coming to Venice Beach again for I think it was season four of American Ninja Warrior. And my friend Todd, who's like a really awesome artsy video creator guy was like, Glenn, you should do it. And I'll make the video submission video, which is like the key. If your submission video is awesome and everything else about you sucks. It doesn't matter. Like if they like that five minute video you're in and luckily that's my case. So 2013, I think you're claiming everything else about you sucks <laughs> <laughs> in sense of uh, being good at obstacles at that point in my life where I, I had a 412 mile I would brag about. And then 
they'd say, oh, there's this runner guy with these short shorts coming on, you know, and, but I have a great submission video and that's pretty much it. Um, so he, he uh, got me in these like multicolor um, jogging outfits, running one scene to the other. He would switch out the color jogging outfit I was in and it looks pretty cool. It was visually like a pretty neat thing showing how I would do so well at this Ninja Warrior uh, during my submission video. And I got in that year and I was a total newbie with obstacles. I tried to train all that grip strength, but um, that got me into the, basically into the obstacle, like un learning about how to do obstacles, but it had zero running basically. Right. So I kind of turned off a lot of my run training. That's 2013 and did more minimal to um, offset it with doing like the grip strength training, which I thought it had to be either or interestingly at that time, you know, like, Oh, I can't, do this other stuff. I got to focus, right? My single track mind. And so once I got into that, um, I did actually pretty well at the uh, event. I, they, Ninja Warrior, some, for some reason made a YouTube video of my run. So you, I, you could actually look it up on there and the, the, the people in the comments like mock me. So it's funny. They're like, who is this guy trying to do obstacles? He sucks. But, uh, <laughs> which I did, but it was fun. Made it up to obstacle five out of six right before the warped wall on uh, day one and failed it out and um, didn't end up going anywhere, but it was a great experience. And I think more importantly, relative to obstacle racing, it kind of got me the bug of like, this is pretty cool. And like I said, back in like high school and college, I did a little bit of strength training. Like my friends and I, we'd like to do little games, like how many sets of pull-ups with the minimum number of sets of pull-ups you can do to get to 50. So we would like go over a local pull-up bar and uh, I'd always be jealous of my friend, Matt, who would do it in two sets. He did 30, 20, and I could never do it in 50 pull-ups in two sets. But it was always great to always have that in my back pocket. So I knew I had a little bit of that. So, and it, as it turns out, I never got invited back on to Ninja Warrior after two more submission videos the next two years. Um, I didn't do well. So, but Later on, 2013, I definitely I saw, I think it was Spartan Race, World Champs, and I saw you, Bracken, and a few of the other guys like going up there doing it. And it kind of got me inspired to um, start training. So right around September 2013, I got more into like back into running a little bit more and uh, did in, I think it was early December 2013, did the uh, Malibu Spartan. And that kind of, I got fifth place there. And that kind of just kind of got me more excited about it and actually ended up being with these elite races I, my first five races went five four three two one with one my first 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 place finish um in elite being at uh las vegas uh 2014 mm -hmm. and uh when they had it at some like gravel pit where there was like no hills you just like crawled up these 20 foot tall gravel piles of gravel there a few mm -hmm. times and then would run pretty much flat the whole way which is um, my claim to fame, my only legit race beating Hunter <laughs> because there was a lot of running and, uh, he, his running fitness wasn't there on for flats yet. And, uh, so, um, I want to, I want to interrupt you really quick before we get into all this stuff. And that is, um, I just want to really quick spend a little more time on your like self run training, um, because oh, yeah. I'm not quite happy with how we dove into that yet. Um, Bracken, you probably noticed this as a theme. And then I want to pick up from that race, by the way, that you're just going into. But um, I don't know if you notice this as a theme, but we have two kind of athletes that we have on, on this podcast and in this sport. And it's the kinds who have learned from their coaches and their own experiences coming up and then maybe molded into their own, which Bracken, you and I have sort of done, right? Like I still do some of my traditional college workouts because I learned them 
in a training process. And then we have the other athletes, which is another like third or half of the pool like you. The, the theme with every successful athlete in this sport that didn't have a traditional running background seems to be that they've one, taken ownership over their running and two, became students of their running. Like you just held up a book casually right next to your computer. It seems like guys like you always have books handy right next to their computer, Glenn, that <laughs> training books and you and and you learned from that. And I feel like a lot of people sit out there helpless. Like I want to get better at running and I don't even know where to start. You hear that a lot. And they go and they and they download a free plan on the internet or they do something, but they never really learn anything. And I just want to like hone in on that point. Like you chose to learn, right? And there's a lot of people out here just looking for people to tell them what to do, which is fine. That works too. That's called coaching. But then there's like self-learning and self-prescribing and self-coaching. Um, like what did you learn through that process? Because I think a lot of people out there blindly follow plans, but don't understand what they're doing. And so I just thought we should spend a minute on that. Like, what did you learn through that process? Yeah, I, a lot of things and it helped too that, you know, uh, when, when I did join that team in San Diego, um, when I was like midway into um, developing myself as a runner, uh, just a few years in, the guy was a coach and he started giving me training plans and, and he was great, but it was started, it did start to annoy me when, I'm not good at communicating. You know, I'm your typical engineer where I can't communicate very well. So with the coach, I wouldn't be asking him like, oh, why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? I, I wasn't good at that. And I felt like I'd be bugging him if I asked him all these so-called stupid questions about why every workout is. He's like, just, you know, and I thought I'd get a response like, oh, just, just do it. And, you know, or it would be he would answer me not in my language of how, you know, in my analytical mind, I want to hear, no, like, why am I doing that? And I, I keep asking, so like, well, why am I only doing four sets this week? And it kind of started to bug me when I would have a coach, that coach, like just prescribe stuff for me. And I didn't fully grasp it. So I kind of started to, like you're saying, take that ownership and say, like, all right, well, I see these certain principles at this actual coach guy is helping me with and I do take away because he gives you bits and pieces to take forward you know like how to do my certain aspects of my drills and that's why the great thing about a real an actual physical in-person coach where he takes me through specific drills and he did a good job of explaining why I start with high knees and high toes and then you do butt kicker in like we would do that together but when it came to certain aspects of the training I guess I wasn't getting what I wanted to know about, okay, that's great. I have you, but then like, I don't want to like have to pay and like depend on that forever. <laughs> I want to have something where you can kind of get me ramped up, show me what you know, and then I'll move on and then not have to depend on you as a coach anymore. And I, cause I know it myself, I've learned how to fish. You don't have to just give me fish my whole life. So um, I can now learn how to do it on my own. I think that's what we want to hear is that a lot of, not a lot of people, almost everyone, the first time you get to something new that you don't have background in, it is so imposing. Like the enormity of the process is so imposing that you just turn around and you find someone to do it for you. Mm. You know, I think that's why a lot of people don't fix their own car or troubleshoot their own electronics or do their own taxes. It's because it's so time consuming upfront and mentally frustrating that why would I bother? It's like, Kirk, what, what did you, when I was trying to fix all these plumbing problems we had in our house, what did you tell me? Why don't you, why don't you just hire somebody? 
Yeah, he said, I have an app on my phone and I can just find someone and in a half hour they'll be there and I pay him 200 bucks and it's gone. I'm on with my life. And he's right. And I'm right. Like we're both right. right. It depends on what your reasoning is. But I think that most people would benefit from, like you said, find some books, actually finish them. Don't read the introduction and think like, oh, this is above me because we, we made it through school. You have made it through learning other tasks. It's the enormity of the task up front is not how big it's actually going to be but you have mm -hmm. to you have to spend the time until you're comfortable with the material and everyone would get comfortable with the material mm -hmm. and you are one of the people that proved that it's obviously doable did you did you find then just out of curiosity knowing like understanding maybe the why a little bit more did you see that correlate to more successful improvements in your running when you put your own puzzle pieces together yeah i mean it it helped to see like when i I know I, a coach could have guided me through certain as, certain principles I learned through the books also, but it's definitely empowering or whatever, exciting when you start like seeing you train a certain way and the results start happening. Like, oh, wow, my 15K, I broke 17 minutes for the first time. Oh, okay. Or my 5K, I broke, you know, 16 minutes for the first time. Like something's going right here. And like for me, much like probably many people where – like A, I'm self-motivated, and then B, when you start seeing those results, that just further drives, you know, it burns you hotter. And then, and then knowing like, okay, something's going right, but then what happened is the, your perform, my performance would get better. But then, like I said, the the second big barrier is being able to mesh that with um, staying healthy and not getting injured. And that was for me. It's interesting because I could learn. The, the science behind aerobic rest, you know, like VO2 max training and that stuff. But then that doesn't, you have to have the other side of the coin, which is the fitness. And I was a lot, like I said, I was a lot slower to get that. So that was very disappointing when I would keep getting injured. And then I almost kind of, maybe why that's why it got me into the obstacle stuff in the first place. Cause I was like, you know what? I'm getting burned out. The same guys are winning all the five K's. <laughs> I can't win this hundred dollar prize money for the, San Diego 5k race. And it's, I kind of was itching for something new at that point. Um, and, but yeah, it does though. Like it, it's exciting for a while when you can see those results happening. We, we started this conversation with self-education, right? Which you've been doing a lot of do you yeah. guys, what are, if you had to pick one book, I'm just curious in all your accounts, Bracken, you should go first. One book that you've learned the most from that's helped you be the most successful. It, as an athlete in the self-coaching realm, what what would they be? What would be your one? You only get one. Which one comes to mind? I almost have to say that Jack Daniels book because it was my first one. Mm -hmm. If I, it's the one I returned to. Which book to, specifically? Uh, running Formula, yeah. second edition. Daniels Running Formula. Yeah. So it's hard now with the knowledge you've gained along the way to pick out which one you learn the most from. But that one is the one I I probably took the most information from because I went into it more or less a blank slate. Yeah. If I had to start over, I don't know if that's the one I would have started with. Mm -hmm. What about you, Glenn? Would it be that same book? Yeah, it'd probably be the same. And to be honest, I, I've bought some, I, my bookshelf with running fitness books are probably larger. And it's one of those guys, you know, where you, you have, they see the big bookshelf of a bunch of things behind them, but you, they don't, haven't really read them all. Mm -hmm. After after Jack Daniels, I mean, um, Yancey Culp has been a good influence where he's put me on to some of the, like, as you guys were talking with him last week uh, about, uh, what's his name? Um, Arthur Lydia. 
author Lydiard. And so he turned me on to that. So I bought a few of his books. Um, but um, yeah, I feel like beyond, I don't, I haven't read too much. So it is impressive when I hear Bracken and you guys and Batres when he was on talking about all these, the various uh, other coaches that they glean things off of. And I feel like for me, I learned, you know, once you like brings it, once you learn, you have a, get your, learn a foundation of some of these principles. I feel like I'm probably, it's probably not a wise thing for me to do, but I'm like, okay, I have the basics. I feel like what these others can show me now that I'm, I understand I've been running for a while. I know it works for me is, is pretty minimal. And in terms of what I more like, what are you going to show me? That's going to be so mind blowing. Like, And I'm doing the sport and they're talking run specific. So I'm doing a support at this point that I'm not even doing, you know, like the type of marathon training or 5k to half marathon training that Jack Daniels talks about for road specific. I'm not really even doing that. Like I'm in the Jack Daniels cross country section, you know, cause I'm, it's, that's great for that. But then I'm, it's such a specific thing. I'm with the obstacle racing and even particular, even more specific within Spartan because these last few years, their, their obstacles have become a lot more set and you could almost do well, same before, you know, you can become so specific, pull a VJ and throw a bunch of the obstacles in your backyard and do it like that. And so then you're not just, you're getting, you're figuring how that works. And because every single OCR race is going to have obstacles, it, in my mind, it's like what John Yatsko used to talk about with like, or what I gleaned from him from his uh, hurdle training and coaching where I, I don't even know if he said this, but I imagine it's like, if you're training to be a hurdler, it's not like you're going to hurdle like only when you get to a race and practice them. You're going to pro- you want to practice that exact hurdle with that exact height, with the exact spacing, or with the steeplechase as often as often as you can, or within reason, at least a- once or twice a week. So I'm kind of taking that and like lean. I don't know. So there's like the coaching books, but then I'm going to like kind of maybe jumping or tangent or getting into the next thing of like I'm like I have a little list. Like I take stuff from the guys who are really good already, right? Because I'm going to stand on the shoulders of giants like you guys, Atkins, um, with in terms of specificity. And I'm in, I don't think enough people, I think some people like Ian and you guys have talked about his Jacksonville 2020 race, the sprint. I've, <laughs> it's probably embarrassing, but like I've looked, I've watched that video so many times and it's weird. Like Ian even said something like that six foot wall, he saved like two or three seconds just on that six foot wall, the way he jumped over it like that without spinning around backwards and you know, like he didn't mess up his stride as much. And I'm like, what? And I thought I looked at it all. And then I don't know, all, all to say it's, um, it, I don't know. It was, it was neat to see like, not just how like guys like that would do the obstacles, like, like Atkins did the obstacles there in Jacksonville, but his strategy, you know, beating Ryan Kempson to the bucket, to the bucket, like, yeah, clutch, man, when you're in a bucket carry where it's hard to pass, you know, like the way he, it was a previous race. I think it was in um, where he barely, barely held off VJ in Seattle the year before with like not letting VJ pass on the down, downhill sandbag carry, you know, like little stuff like that. Like, I don't know, all those things to me um, are become more important. Whereas once I get the, like the front fundamentals of running and training, I feel like I have enough of there. I'm probably to not accurate. You know, I could definitely still learn a lot, but like, I want to, you know, focus now once I have these base fundamentals with the running aspect of it, but like 
experiment with myself because I'm doing a ton of the heart rate training. And I know guys like Atkins and other folks definitely depend a lot on like heart rate monitors to see how now my body responds to putting myself through specific um, race simulations a lot. And I liked how when you guys were talking, oh, uh, with, um, oh, I forget his name now, the Canadian guy who was doing like, he's big on box jumps. What's his name again? Mikhail. Yeah. And Mikhail, um, like it was Mick he, and he's a great guy getting whooped by him in Montana <laughs> a couple years ago. But like, it's just neat. Like, wow, he's able to like transfer so much of that. That your guys' podcast with him really helped me to like under like have this like specificity mindset between him and like I say like like VJ's obstacles in his backyard, even Hunter with his the way he's training, because you could even get more specific. What what's the race he's not decafit? He's doing the uh Hi, Rex. Rex. yeah, and it's like the way you can train like so ultra specific for that kind of thing. It reminds me of that one like thing story of like that that old guy in the gym who does his little like training regiment and he does a little this a little bit of that like how fast he can do it and because he does that exact thing for 10 years he's the best in the world at that one thing <laughs> he could do it really well because that's what he's specific after after hearing glenn i want to revise my book list well, i was going to add to that by the way 80 20 hands down just the concept of of making sure you're following those principles changed my training for the better hands down Continue. That's all I wanted to add to that. Glenn, and you're right. Glenn talked about get your baseline knowledge, then expand it, and then fine tune and get into the the nitty gritty pieces. You don't start with those. And so I'm going to revise my book list to the the Glenn from 15, 20 years ago to that athlete who is self teaching. I would prescribe 80, 20 running first because that now frames your entire reference for yep. everything I learned from here on out has to fall within the confines of mm. balancing my intensities. And then next I would recommend Jack Daniels running formula because now you understand I need to polarize my training and he is going to teach me how to periodize my training within the confines of polarity. And then after that is where you've, I've now got my, my general degree. I'm gonna go out and get my master's or PhD in fine tuning. So those would be the first two, 80-20, then Jack Daniels, if I had to start all over for anyone. Hmm. No, it's too bad. Not too bad about that, but too bad about that coming from where we came from, Bracken, is as like collegiate athletes, like none of that was ever preached to us about this 80-20. It felt like it was intensity and we had no guidance on our, our recovery runs in between track sessions. And so like I discovered 80-20 running in my 30s. Yeah. And I wasn't able to apply that at all. So I was running way too hard the day before a race or before a quality session. And I still saw some success, but I definitely put a governor on myself without knowing it because that I had to learn later. So I agree with you, like right out of the gates. Yeah. And it's funny because we were all what and no why. And all of our what, all, all the coaches focus was built around quality days. And then they just didn't even really show up on recovery days. You checked in and you were gone when those were the days where they could have ensured that we were absorbing their quality days. College, your coaches are judged by your, your successes and your failures are swept aside like, ah, oh, they didn't belong. When in reality, you could have had a whole lot less failures out of your athletes if people knew how to work at their intensities. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it should almost be required reading for every runners. Start with 80-20. And I think now, though, I think coaches... I'm hoping like if you went and sat in like a high school boys coaching like cross country session, maybe this is preached a little bit more now. I feel like it is coming to yeah. the surface. I hope. I do want to make one note before we move on, Kirk. 
Yep. I've had several people message in the last month, like, Hey, I, I just, I was, I was 75, 25 last week, or I was, I was <laughs> 81, 19. That's okay. And I, I want to reiterate to everyone listening that 80, 20 is a principle, not a prescription. The range is from, they've shown research that there have been gold medal endurance runners or endurance athletes who have been 91.9. So the range is basically 90.10 to- Those are very high volume athletes. They are, but 90.10 to 70.30 is about their range. That's 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 the ideal range. 80-20 just sits in the middle of that. And so it's a safe place to say, hey, go hit 80-20. And then even if you miss by two variations, two standard deviations, either way, you're still in the confines of safe. So 80-20 should not be your golden rule. It should be the mean of your zone. Hmm. Good to make that point. I agree. Uh, Glenn, we, so I, that was a long, I was one question I didn't expect to go this. We got a lot out of this one um, was back. Okay. So you went to your first race and then you led yourself up fifth, fourth, third, second, first, you smashed Hunter in a flat Las <laughs> Vegas race. And that was your first year in the sport. You beat Hunter McIntyre in your first year in the sport. Yeah, that would have been, yeah, the middle of the first year, 2014 doing it. And that right after, right before that race or right after I got on the pro team, um, and, uh, yeah, it's been nice. I haven't, um, but then, yeah. So then after that, I did poorly in a few races and missed my first two spear throws in a row at, uh, in Colorado. And when Bracken whooped me in, uh, Colorado there in a sprint, I think it was a military sprint. And I think it was a, uh, a Navy credit union race where they used to give, there's like a handful of those races back then where um it was, was it 2000 1750 for top three? and somewhere three two one as well yeah yeah because i i the arizona was a and navy federal credit union race a couple races earlier and because you guys were all doing that one hobie race up where you guys won buttloads more money but um me chad tramell and yatsko snuck stuck around to get top three in um an arizona race but um yeah, that was my first experiences being able to uh, race against you guys, see what it's all about. But th- yeah, big learning curve. I mean, that's why like th- this, like doing these races, like oh gosh, like okay, you learn the hoist, you learn. <laughs> uh, my hoist setup got much heavier after that first race. Oh, you know, at that time there's a lot more variability in the obstacles. So like they had this like plate drag thingy or like a, a what you drag a concrete block or sometimes two. Right, Brack- Bracken's done a lot more races with those back in the day. Yeah. Uh, eventually that became an injury risk i think you know probably the tractor pull they called it okay right tractor pull but it, like in arizona their tractor pull they suddenly got like a two or three times bigger it's like this heavy duty one instead of that little they, they made it two or three times heavier so chad tramell like couldn't hang and i luckily snuck past him on that one part that's the only reason i got second and he got third in arizona and he got really cold in the water in the ice water afterwards but it's all these like random little things but like like i was saying like those things at this level, when you play, start getting competitive on the, you know, elite and age groups, and these things make a larger and larger chunk of your time that could be gained or lost by f- making sure, you know, just like VJ having his little white cloth and having his strategy in the, on the tire in Jacksonville, you know, to kick it back. And we've known that strategy for a few, few years to move the tire a little bit, you know, but you know, Josiah was screwed, you know, <laughs> like there's no way he have the experience to know that, but his next race he's doing big bear or whatever it is, hopefully not Vegas. Cause he'll probably whoop me. 
I was wondering if he was going to show up to Vegas. I know. Do you know where he lives, by the way, Josiah? Vale. Vale? Pretty sure he's in Vale. Okay. Well, we'll see. So he's not going to struggle with uh, altitude. <laughs> Living at elevation is cheating. <laughs> I know. Like cheating. What you're describing is why I think it's so easy for people to go all in and obsess over the sport. It's because there the variables are always there's something more that gets added to the mix. I we get compared a lot to triathlon or <laughs> sky running or I don't believe it. I think we're golf where you know roughly what's going to happen, but the whole setup changes every course and whether it rains or doesn't rain changes the way the grounds and the greens play and whether you're hitting out of the rough or the fairway and like you might hit one shot only one time per year like you might use that club out of the rough one time per year but the one time you have you're like i can't hit this club if i'm on a 15 degree slope here and so now you go in and you put hours hours in for the one time you have to hit that one mm -hmm. shot ever again and people become obsessed with golf and they become obsessed with our sport and i think it's the same thing the terrain matters the the apparel the equipment matters the uh, course style matters the location like everything changes each time and so you have people like yourself and us who the one track minds get obsessed with mastering every single variable in it. Mm, yeah, very true. Yeah, it's, I mean, hence obstacles in the backyard, you know, and yeah, um, I started that with training for the Ninja Warrior. You know, I made a, the exact obstacle I failed on, <laughs> I made that in my backyard uh, at the last house we lived at, you know, and now I have a new set of junk I have in the backyard, you know, and so, um, yeah, that's exactly it. And that's the beauty of it because. If you're like me, where you come from background where I was getting my butt kicked by the same guys every weekend on a road race, it's refreshing to have that ability to even the, the scales, you know. And, of course, as we still see in a lot of our races, everyone is just about as good on the obstacles now <laughs> for the most part. A lot of these top 10, top 20 guys at the U.S. series races and stuff. So, you know, obviously we're – like you guys talked about previous, we we're kind of narrowing in on getting to the more optimal, you know, like, or like a lot of guys, there's not that many hunter type guys that can get away with 200 pound guys on that course. Um, guys can, you have to be pretty special to be able to handle that because there's not as many variables that could help in hunters way. Cause VJ can do, as we saw a bucket, you said, Kirk, like, what was he five seconds faster, you know? And so he's got that, what do you call the lean body, mastery or that yeah and so that ends up seeming to be like one of the best things of course you know vj complained about in tahoe world champs he didn't have that golf swing of the double sandbag carry in his pack <laughs> so that <laughs> one thing kind of mm -hmm. made it a lot worse so it's like that ruined his race in tahoe i mean it, so we were right. together yeah in, in the top 10 and he finished like you know, out of the top 20 after he got done with that and had to work his way back into the teens. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. yeah. Or cold water for Angel Quintero when I raced against him a couple of times or he would have beat me, but you know, place wise, luckily for me, that screwed him up when we were jumped in the water together a couple in 2017. So he ended up not being able to recover from staying in the water too long. And so, yeah, all those little aspects, but yeah, a lot of it is through experience, but um, I mean, there's also a lot you can gain just looking at the people's YouTube videos and Spartans videos um, to see. I mean, I do that a lot, even just with Vegas. I've been to the this Vegas venue in 2016. Um, Cody kicked my butt at that race, but it was um, I. But it's five years ago. I don't remember. But I was like, oh yeah, it was a pretty sandy terrain. You know, it looked 
almost like beach sand. And you can see that in these videos, even just from folks, anyone, you know, shooting out a YouTube video about it. And, and you can see even Lou, look on all the past, um, uh, the obstacle lists and you can see what type of, some courses have certain like, obstacles that they don't have on certain venues or do i don't know so all to say that all those little aspects go into it you know and knowing if there's going to be a water if we're going to go through, go through any water and how to strategize with that you know um and yeah has spartan set any rules like you're not allowed to like bring a towel or did they didn't because you mentioned watson might update that and that's always a weird thing because i know back in the day Coble's argument why they didn't include that in years past are where it gets to be a, this gray area where like, oh, well, can you use your jacket? Or, oh, I, I patched on a towel on my jacket. Can I not use that anymore? It's mm -hmm. just, it becomes kind of dumb, but that's the level of like, hey, well, if you don't have something to dry off your hands um, or do, that can be the difference. Or if it makes it not legal to have something extra or part of your gear with like that where you yeah. can have something in a pouch or part of your jacket that can help. So a chamois patch on your waistband, you know, right. something like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or like Velcro to hold on a little like rag to help you dry your hands. Not that I've done that or anything or I'm planning mm -hmm. to Vegas, but someone might be obsessed enough to do something like that just to have something so that they could have a wash. They could wipe their hands or, you know, go crazy and get like a, Ziploc refrigerator style, a freezer bag style that doesn't leak and they've leak tested it in their sink to make sure that if you do go through water, water won't get into your little, um, uh, into your rag that you're going to wipe your hands with. I mean, you got to be crazy to go that edge into it. I'm sure. Yeah. How many not. times have you done you know, We've all done that before the Tahoe swim for sure. Especially. Oh, that's good. Okay. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Now, have you, um, getting back to your first year then, can you walk us? Can you walk us through your progression in sport that way? So you had a very successful first year, more successful than most would have. And then, can you just like give us a not a cliff notes version, but a cliff notes version of like the next few years in your progression? Because what I'm ultimately getting at, or I want to get at, is I felt like you were on the scene very heavily, and you were doing the U.S. National Series, and you were running the shorter stuff. And in the last year or two, you've shifted kind of what I feel like your focus has been. So you went from all the big time races to being top end Spartan pro to like, maybe not prioritizing that label as much, maybe not feeling the pressure to race as much. So I just want to like, if you could walk us through all that, I would be interested to hear that. Yeah, I think my a big attention to detail and getting all the obstacles right on the beginning helped. And of course the, the running background, I was already training for those kind of like distances of those first few races, of course on flat ground. So, on the flattish type races like Vegas, that was my best type of race course. Um, but I learned, uh, part of my learning progression that first year was learning that, oh, Spartan has extra big hills, not just like a 300 foot single hill in Malibu, um, but it can be like a 500 footer or multiple 400 foot hills back and forth with a lot of descending. And I thought I was a good hill runner. And then you, I started, I did the, um, a race in New York tuxedo. And I learned when all, a bunch of guys kicked my butt, including Hunter and Isaiah and Novakovic and Cody, where it was like, oh my gosh, this is another level of hill running. So that I bought an incline trainer, Nordic track, um, um, from Craigslist, like a couple weeks after I got my butt kicked after one of those races. So 
Um, it sounds like you've kind of gone through a certain, some amount of that progression, uh, Kirk too, in that there's not a ton of, I even, you even have less Hills where you live, but there wasn't anything to the extent where I felt like I could get adequate training on. And again, convenience wise, um, I was able to run with my son in an ergo, a front ergo baby carrier while I would do like 30 and 40% on my incline trainer. Okay. I have a question about that. Right. I tried that. What did you do about your face sweat? I would drip sweat right down onto the baby's head. Yeah, a lot of headbands, like multiple headbands and replacing headbands okay. a lot. I tried to come up with a bib contraption that would cover the baby, but then I couldn't see him. So I tried it with Brayden. I tried to, even just hiking. I couldn't do it without dripping sweat. Oh, yeah. I, I know It was sweaty. And um, that's, yeah, it looked <laughs> like it wasn't ideal. But for some reason, it would... It would it would put him to sleep most of the time and i would kind of just yeah i don't know how that ended up working but um maybe i'm just a, a face sweater <laughs> yeah i mean that just goes to show like where you make you make a way you, you know if there's a will there's a way okay i'm gonna figure it out i got a kid you know i can't get out from the house okay we bought this weird treadmill that i never even knew existed that goes that steep and you make it work and yeah. So that, I mean, there's benefits to it and see, gosh, even with that, it's funny that first year to try to wrap up like that first year of training, like I almost, it's interesting. I actually took it too far where I need to get this hill training. And I remember, I think it was that first year where um, maybe it was the second year, but somewhere around there was where um, I started getting obsessive after, okay, no, it was the next year after that, but I got like, so into this steep hill running um at the end of the 2014 year because i think it was after vermont it was so steep and like the double sandbags i'm like okay like it's funny how i became went from like a flat runner to like oh i'm spartan i have to get good at hills i got too i went too far to that extreme right that's the danger of being oh i want to get so good at this thing but you got too into it now i'm doing too much elevation gain i'm like tweaking my lower calves like upper achilles down area and that would put me out of commission because I didn't know how to deal with that as a run, as a flat road runner. You didn't, I didn't have to deal with that very much. So it's like a whole new set of injuries and okay, I guess I can't run three days in a row on Hills. And then, Oh, I guess I can't run two days in a row on Hill. You know, if it's 5,000 feet or more on gain, but if you're motivated, you kind of learn this stuff and you have to, again, you know, you have to keep a good running log <laughs> to make to remember, you know, I use Excel and have like, you know, each day has a big, text window so you can like write a lot of junk because sometimes especially for injuries that's huge having that thing to be able to go back to like oh okay i was a, i got hurt when i did three days in a row of hills and then you kind of just evolve your training and recovery that way but um i went too much in 2015 with the hills and um incline running or actually the day of the week before Tahoe 2016, I remember I was did so much 30 and 40% that I actually lost a lot of my speed. And that's when VJ on a Sunday sprint in SoCal, VJ when he was like 14 or 15, beat me on that sprint. And that was so annoying to me because I'm like, I mean, I'm stoked for him. He got like a record for the youngest first place. But for me, I was like, wow, that shows like I know I could beat this guy fitness wise. I, that was a, it was good though. Cause it showed me, I was like overdoing it on one aspect and I had to even the scales a bit. And then I learned it again when at Tahoe for the first year. I, oh, in, oh yeah. in yeah. 2015, 
I'm like, crap, Tahoe was supposed to be like Vermont <laughs> with a double sandbag carry. And it's funny, I did so bad. I think that my, it might have been the year I ran with you. No, I think with you, Bracken, it was like when you were in your Hoka's, we ran in 2016 where we both uh, didn't do that well. One of those years where I'm like, crap, where I was so ready for another Vermont, you know? And then mm -hmm. it became like, oh, they, they don't let you go on that. Like Tahoe uh, management only let us go on these like more groomed, like mellow-ish 15 to 20% at most grade hills. And they kept it like that the next five years, right? But I kind of had to slowly learn, like guys like Hunter and Kent and other guys learn much quicker than I did. And so, yeah, that was, that's a big thing to know too, like to get so, you know, focused on one aspect of it, then I lose, I lose the overall picture to like, I lost a lot of my speed. And then on Tahoe, I was not fast enough to keep up with the not, so extreme grades, you know, cause I was doing these 30% and it was, it was, it taught me too, you know, you learn, and you guys have talked about that too. I think you even just recently how there's that threshold where once you get over that, like 20 to 25%, that's another level of, you were calling that, like, what was you, you called Utah, that like douche grade, douche grade. <laughs> or something, where you're in that 10 or 15% more mm -hmm. runnable where it screws you if you don't have that, uh, that uh, the running at altitude you don't live at altitude where it, it's terrible yeah um and I, maybe i'm not going to do <laughs> i probably won't do utah partly because of that reason <laughs> um ultra or super because of that but but i like you gave me confidence to do big bear not coming from elevation <laughs> but, did it, me? Uh, what's that i did well when you guys were talking about how maybe big bear is so steep that you're oh. not as negatively um, <clears throat> adversely affected by that. And you might be able to hang in a little longer, <clears throat> but I don't know. I mean, muscular fatigue plays more into it than like, like aerobic ceiling. I feel like when you get to those steep grades that really burn the legs up. And so I, I, I agree with that. I've experienced the difference between a Utah and a big bear. Big bear is much more achievable in my opinion to mm -hmm. place while coming from out from sea level versus like a Utah. So yeah, Bracken was spot on there. <laughs> okay. Right. By the way, yeah, I don't know. So just a little shout out to you guys because I haven't said my appreciation yet. Like you guys have been – I love how you guys like explain things like that. For me, and I'm sure a lot of people can appreciate that level of like getting into the weeds, as some might say. But that's what helps to like make certain decisions about where you're racing, how you want to race, how you train. So as coaches, I don't know. You guys have been right on with that. And even like I know Kirk – like one little tidbit I'll just throw out there. Cause I feel like um, that tit, the tip you said about, Oh, imagine when you're running to keep your posture better. Like imagine a string pulling on your chest or something. And it's mm -hmm. at some undefined tree way up ahead of you or something high up ahead. Mm -hmm. That's always in front of you that pulls you up. And I feel like I've actually pictured that on some of my runs to be like, Oh, I feel like I'm sagging a bit or Sage Kennedy. I listened to a lot of his YouTube videos where he explains like, don't feel like you have you're like you're sitting down or you're you're you know like you have this um, like a poor running posture while you're going like things like that that you guys have said I've like I've definitely taken with me on a lot of like my training to help out and even someone who I'm so called oh I've been around running for 20 years but things like that help even for experienced guys like myself um, to kind of remind me to kind of keep keep that posture and the running. Uh, position right and when I'm going and that when you do that how it like straightens out a lot of other potential issues you know so thanks guys yep. well thank you uh, you know how many times I've heard that string thing that people have used 
Uh, it's a pro- I, that was a, by the way, I'll just say it and thought it would sound stupid. And if I haven't had 50 people say, I thought of that, I was getting tired. And then I pictured that string out of my chest and <laughs> straighten myself back out and finish the intervals hard. I was like, it's imp- amazing how much that one little thing stuck that one specifically. I had to think of it yesterday and I did two and one minute repeats, but getting ready for Las Vegas. And I had to oh. think that I thought of that same thing as I was fatiguing towards the end of those two minute reps. So, yeah, I gave out two minute intervals this week, Kirk. You did? Yeah. Well, what was the setup? Tell me about it. I'll tell yeah. you about mine. It, it was it was a classic half rest, two on, one off. For people racing? Yeah. I was two on, four by two on, one off, one on, one off, four okay. each. So 12 That's minutes work. Sim- Look at Sim- us. What about you, Glenn? What was, what's your last one before Vegas? What'd you, oh, what'd yeah. You um, it was funny. I've been like totally struggling because I'm actually doing something you're not supposed to do and changing it up a little bit. Um, yeah. How I've been training, which is probably dumb, right? Don't do this. But it's the idea where I've been used to the last almost year. <clears throat> I've been doing this thing. And actually, Bracken, you gave me the idea for this a long time ago. In the idea of for a long time ago, it's probably on your old uh, other podcast. Um, where you there was no other about- podcast before the running public. <laughs> yeah. Kirk, Kirk was my first. <laughs> where it was you talked about something like a nine day training <clears throat> blocks but you broke yeah. down into the three day chunks nine and, day weeks mm-hmm. yeah something like that sorry yeah like that where um i just i started because i always used to struggle whether do i do one hard day and then only one easy day or do i make it two easy days but that doesn't work with a seven day week and i like to you know i'm pretty structured so i need to have it kind of structured like that so um real quick like real quick background like i've been going to this three-day thing where I'll be doing my plan is to do hard work on day one um you know like a hard and then uh usually it'd be like tempo or interval day and then like an easier it, for me it's like a 10 mile easy effort I don't I have a limiter you know and then um day three is um really light so only like five four to six miles and then day four is back to uh, like a hard race simulation or like hard uh, harder effort. And then the next day after that is like a three hour, uh, two to four hour long run. So I double the, you know, I do a hard intensity. And then the next day is like a long run where it's easy effort, sometimes a little progressive of a long run, but I kind of with, I had those with the ultra in mind where, you know, like running off a tired legs idea, Mm -hmm. but it's still, that was able to get me having those two days in a row was able to get me by on a seven day week. Right. Cause it's uh, sets of three days and then a set of four days of with the two days hard in a row. And then after that long run, I give myself a full off day and I'm kind of going off of the Cody moat Hobie call, like a f- complete off day, um, maybe a little bit of bike stationary bike or something, but almost complete. And I felt like for me, and maybe I'm hoping speaking to a handful of people out there where, I felt like when I would in previous years sometimes do on, one day on, one day off, one day on, one day off, too much of that, I would grind myself in the, in the ground a little too much. When I have that, like, I'm willing to take that complete off day because I know the last two days have been hard. I've been doing back to back and it's maybe not, it's an unorthodox way to do it, but I, I, over time I've tested it and I found like that worked well for me week after week, testing, playing around with juggling the intensity and the amount for the long run and having a complete off day. Cause I always felt like, Oh man, like how is Kobe Hobie or Cody Moat doing like a complete off day? Like, don't you, you have to get more mileage and more volume, but like with being 
for me, that kept it being a relatively high volume still while taking one complete day off. You know, I'm getting a long run where I'm doing 20 to 30 mile, well, not 30, like 20-ish miles on that long run. So I'm still getting 60 to 70 miles a week um, scale proportionately for what the listeners like running volume is, but I've experimented with that. And I found that to be something where that's worked well. So all to say, I had a, a race a couple weeks ago, a couple weeks ago where I did like a half marathon trail run and it kind of screwed me up by one day. So all to say my long run, my hard effort was on Tuesday. This, uh, so it was two days ago and I won't, so I'm going to actually have three easier days, you know? So I did a hard effort were some intervals and a short race simulation. You are an engineer. You didn't adjust your schedule. You just yeah. went right into, oh, now I'm one day behind and I will keep that one day and now I'm three oh. days off. That's so funny. Your last quality on Tuesday, you're going to be real fresh here Saturday. You have no excuses, Glenn. <laughs> I know. What, what, what was what was your last workout? You got to tell us. We, we gave you the details. What no, was no. I mean, hey, I've, if, I've, if I've shared how I've uh, cheated all my obstacle races, uh, this is nothing now. <laughs> Um, no, it's, um, uh, totally secret. No, it, I ended up doing, uh, three by five minutes intervals first. Um, I think I did. Yeah. I put on my, um, vapor flies on it. So I've been fun. Like, I mean, obviously VJs are the best when grips needed, but I've been loving like playing around. I know you guys talked a little bit about this too. I've been playing around vapor flies are the freaking hardest shoes to buy first off i'm size 9.5 and i'm like dude it took me like two months to find these things after a guy on a uh on a uh, uh, uh trail run beat me wearing vapor flies because it wasn't it was a pretty mellow trail course and i'm like okay i'm buying these because it's kind of fun plus it's like oh you can use it on some trail it's uh kind of interesting so um vapor flies and alpha flies are my like little like when i want to do a fast road just for fun and i know it's not race course or shoe specific but i can't i'm like one of the it's like a guilty pleasure where like i want to go sub five on some mile intervals and she did uh, three by five minutes yeah so it ended up being three by fives and uh yeah just flat ish so like yeah um tried to hit that on roads uh like five to five you're getting a full mile in each time um yeah i made sure i'm doing it um <clears throat> i still haven't changed my watch i got the new uh polar vantage v2 and i like it because of all of the numbers and stuff uh the the you know the what is it they, they tell you your sleep score and um all that good stuff um all the the metrics but, um, and then, so after that three by five minute, I did a, um, a short, it was a 30 minute race simulation. So with a little bit of hill, tried to simulate Vegas a little bit. So like I'm going to incline treadmill for like two or three minutes. Um, and then go right to like a, a, a low wall, you know, they always start off Spartan with a few wall, more ju wall jumps and stuff. And then, um, in between like one obstacle, I'll go out outside and then just do like a three minute run and then do another obstacle in my house and then back and forth. So on the Strava, when you see it's centered around my house and, you know, I'm just doing my little um, course loops and my run from my home is uh, mostly flat. So I don't have much to play with there. So I have to use my incline if I want any simulate any uh, the next course that's if it's a hilly at all. So, yep. Sorry, dude. I just am a little chatterbox. Sorry. <laughs> that's why we have a long podcast. <laughs> 
<laughs> if I were to do my last quality workout on Tuesday, I'd probably make it a little longer than the one that I did, but I chose to do mine on Wednesday. So that makes sense. Um, Brecken, I know I told you before, but I got sort of a limiter on when I need to wrap up today. I still want to hit the Glenn personal story as well, because mm -hmm. it frames, I think, every everything about who he is. So mm -hmm. I guess I just want to, I want to know before you get to that, and then maybe we can just make that a separate little bit, um, is... I just want to know your plans for this year. Actually, I want to know. I want to know what's on your agenda, where your head is at. Doesn't sound like the ultra series, or if there is one, or any of that is is necessarily what you're chasing. So, like, where can people expect to see you this year, and all and all of that? And I'm personally curious as well. Now that you know, we'll be racing in, in a, a day. Yeah, um, it's. I have my thing, but yeah, it's pretty much just a handful of supers and the ultra world champs. And that's not even a for sure. Cause with the baby, my wife can't crew for me and yeah, congrats on the new baby. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. What are you up to now? Five, five. Yes. I needed yeah. to catch up to Hobie so that I, that's that, then I could race faster now. Well, now you can win a world title. Yeah. So now I can, right. That was my reason. Um, but yeah, it would be, um, I'm thinking Big Bear, I'm bouncing between the super and the ultra. It would be kind of like good a stimulus training to try the ultra and prep for the Colorado. But it would kind of like take eight hours and <laughs> the whole day. And it's back to that family mm -hmm. balance. So maybe the Big Bear super, um, jump in that and get my butt kicked by a bunch of like really guys who are much more ready for it than me. Um, and then... Uh, Monterey super I'd like to do, um, maybe go back to back those days. Um, and, but at least that it'd be good to see, say hi to Mark Botris. Um, mm -hmm. and then after that, uh, what else is there? Um, I think the Tahoe beast I'd like to try to do the, the North American champs. I think that one sounds fun. Um, I don't think I'm making it to, See, and so I'm like travel restricted in a sense where, like I said, with not having Spartan cover, I'm kind of sticking to mostly West Coast, but they have a decent amount of races, right? So mm -hmm. um, after that, um, so no Abu Dhabi, probably. Um, I've said no, <laughs> and mm. understandably, um, that would be a, more of a me and her type trip if we did. But slow sounds like it could be a good one to do as well um i'd like to mix it up at least a couple like that one i think i have a better chance of mixing up better versus big bear right so um on the super on that course would be pretty similar to how i train and um which is a big thing i i like too like i want to do races that i have the best chance of doing it if i am gonna even travel any amount for so yeah that would be that's why i'm sticking in there i'm tr i'm doing races on terrain that i tr train on so i'm not going to the east coast and doing these crazy going through the woods and moggy, squishy, you know, muddy stuff that I've never trained on. And I want to just give myself the best chance, even though I'm missing out on a handful of races. So that's my mindset there. What's the mindset coming to Vegas just because it's drivable and it, you enjoy the course? Or is it like strategically placed? Or is it like, hey, Vegas, I want to go race? Yeah, I mean, there's the first race available, you know, because everything obviously in California, no other races, West Coast even, you know, I mean, just San Antonio last week. But um, and, and it's driving distance. I'm familiar with the venue and it, it kind of helped me to get me pumped on the idea of, oh, okay, practice to get a few supers in and, um, and that could be, um, get me in the right mindset. Cause I, at first I thought slow was going to happen. That'd be, oh, great. You know, do Vegas super and then slow super, but, um, still this will be good. I'm excited. Cause I think my training has, um, 
put me in a place where the supers makes sense um, for me here. So yeah, and I actually, yeah, I'm gonna be tapering pretty well for it. A little more than I would a normal, like local non-championship race. I'm tapering and training specifically for it more than normal. So um, not to like scare anyone off, <laughs> be killing it. No, but uh, I haven't, I don't know. I'm that spear throw. I I'm always weary of, but no, I, I'm excited. I'm feel like it, it should be a good one. Traditionally I've gone the three times I've done Vegas and was first, first, second. So I've traditionally done pretty well. And at Vegas out of any venue, I would, uh, I would love to keep bullshitting, but Bracken, do you want me to just let it run and yeah. leave from here? Yeah, I mean, it's up to Glenn. I don't know how much he wants to chat about this, but I think in terms of audience audience connection, this is going to be like the golden hour for that. Yeah, I'm good. Okay, well, I'll, I'll mute. I'm going to futz here before I leave, so I'm going to mute my mic and hide my cam so you can't see all the crazy shit I do here at my house. Yeah, I don't need Jess flouncing around back there. <laughs> She's at work. Glenn, great chatting with you. I'll see you in a day and a half. Yeah, good stuff, right. Kurt. See you guys. So I, again, I don't, I know you've gone over this a million times, but we have, we found out we have such a new audience in a new sport. Like uh, last, last year, even I had three straight coaching consults where the people asked if I run Spartan race <laughs> where like, I know I'm not like one of the current names, but they didn't, they had no idea that I'd ever even run a race. They huh. thought I was just like a coach. So people have no idea of the, that's part of the reason why we do the backstory of everyone is because pretty much anyone who came into the sport in the last three years has no historical knowledge of what's going on. Yeah. So, I mean, I think part of the reason why you were so embraced early on is everyone just like felt your story. Mm. So yeah. if, if you want to get into it, I think we sure. should. Yeah. Yeah. In 1991, uh, when I was 11, um, is when, um, my, my mom um, was, you know, she was planning to separate from my dad. And um, she actually took my mom took me and my two sisters. I'm a middle child. Um, she took all three of us out of school on a Friday or something. Um, and which was not usual. And I was in sixth grade at that time. But she took us to, um, we didn't go back home to our house. She had a moving van come strategically after my dad left for work that day and moved us into an apartment a mile down the road. And um, she told us what was going on. She was crying a little bit, which she never did. Um, she was telling us, oh, she was gonna, you know, her, it wasn't working out between mom and dad and she was gonna leave. And we stayed in this little apartment for a couple days and just kind of like, okay, uh, all right. No, you know, sixth grade, I didn't know what was going on. I just knew Super Mario Brothers three. <laughs> had, had you been aware, like, was there a strife in your household or was it a relatively happy household? Yeah, um, it was relatively ha happy um, and normal. Um, just, you know, we're living suburb of Los Angeles, north of Los Angeles and Valencia our whole lives. And you were um, playing soccer at the time? Yeah, soccer, normal stuff. Um, the only thing, maybe like a few weeks leading into it, I did. She did cry one other time in the kitchen. I remember, and it was something where oh, that was weird. And she seemed to be more emotional um, than normal, and then at least expressing it to me, doing it in front of me, um, you know. And so I knew that something was a little off, but I was like, well, I mean, I'm sure it's fine, right? You don't, you don't know what you that what it could be like, uh, like they'll, it'll all be fine. Nothing really is wrong with something between her and my dad seemed a little off, 
but I was again into video games and soccer and pretty clueless. So um, when the day came, it was a total shock. Um, my, my older sister was knew a little more. My mom disclosed to her a little more ahead of time what was going on. But me and my younger sister, she was only in second grade, Caitlin, we were just um, going along for the ride and went, oh, whatever happened, that's what we were going to be doing. The that's where we're sleeping tonight, you know, uh, sleeping on a, in this uh, weird apartment here. And um, so, and apparently that same uh, Friday night, my mom delivered, um, had divorce papers delivered to my dad uh, for, um, to get divorced. And so at that point, let us see, they were been they'd been married to 72. So they were married 19 years, three kids, you know? So it, but it was a th situation where at that point, like, yeah, they were just, it was not going well. My mom actually at the, you know, she was having an affair and, but I think there was some deeper stuff with my mom and dad to lead into that affair going on where just like she wasn't being um, in, in the maritally being like treated properly. And it wasn't, the best, not physical, but just like emotionally, it was uh, pretty not good the, the way my dad was handling that the relationship um, that led into the affair, I think. Um, and but ultimately what happened um, after a few days being in this apartment, my mom um, took us back home to talk with my dad because we and because he was obviously coming home as uh, he was a uh, school teacher at the time. Uh, previous to that, he was in the police force for 14 years, but he changed to being a fifth grade school teacher and uh, in Compton of all places. But he got back from school and saw him have came home to an empty home, <laughs> empty cupboards, and like obviously sure he freaked out because I think my mom did a good job of keeping it secret. And uh, it turns out he, um, you know, he wanted to talk about it. So uh, three days after my mom took us out, we went back to home and kind of like it was normal again, you know, like, okay, we're back home, but just for the afternoon. And my mom stayed in the car while her and my dad talked, which was very odd. And, but you guys were inside and they were outside in the car. No, we were inside. My sisters and I were inside in the house playing uh, Mario brothers and they were outside or they were outside of the house in the garage and she was sitting in the car in the garage with her window down in the driver's seat talking to my dad. And my dad was standing outside of the car, um, them both, you know, in the car in the garage. And they were discussing things. It sounded pretty emotional because I remember I looked out the peephole um, from the house just to see what they're doing. So I didn't interrupt them. But I would see that they were talking. I'm like, oh, OK, well, I'm going to go back to my video games uh, again. Pretty clueless of the crazy stuff going on uh, between them at the moment. But later on, on that Monday, it was April 22nd, 91. Um, they ended up, my mom was get, starting to get in the afternoon. My mom decided to get us dinner for the kids and for herself from McDonald's. I believe she left the house that afternoon, a little bit before twilight. And my dad left a little bit after her. It's arguable. And the court, debated over exactly the time frame here. Um, but uh, she never came back after that. And that time I saw her briefly in the garage was the last time I ever saw my mom. And that afternoon and um, a neighbor saw her driving down the street. So she left the garage to go get food for you. Yes. And never came back. And never came back. Yeah. And the last she was seen by anyone, any witness was driving down the street in that car. And so, but the the thing with my dad, why he was suspected of 
um, wrongdoing initially was because he drove right after her um, in the second car and doing the same thing, getting dinner for us kids. And um, it wasn't until a couple hours later when it was starting to get dark where only my dad came home then. And he had some food from McDonald's, I believe. Um, Most of this isn't even from my own memory at this point. Some of it is, but a lot of it's from testimony from the courts. Because what happened is he came back and my mom never came back. And he claimed that she just went back to the apartment after that. And uh, for the next couple of days, he met with her a couple of times. And then on that Friday, that same week, she called him from the airport saying that she's leaving and she's going to think about things, leaving by herself to think about things. Um, so that was his story. But as it turns out, and he, and from then on, even from my dad's story, she was never seen or heard from since. He never was in any contact with her after a few days. Um, and you stayed at your dad's house for those few days while he was yes, chatting with her exactly. before she went to the airport? Yeah, we we didn't stay at the apartment that my mom was at allegedly just by herself, which mm-hmm. would have been very odd because my mom was very <laughs> like me with my, you know, in my, my training methods, she was pretty methodical and like detail oriented <laughs> type person. Um, maybe it's the Japanese. I don't know. But um, we, she would mark down every like dime that she spent at like washing the clothes at the coin op, you know, so, and make, detailed notes to my school teacher saying that we're Glenn might be a little acting funny because his parents are going through some issues. You know, she would make daily notes, which were apparent at the, um, the trial. But as it turns out, the, the evidence came to show that my dad in fact murdered my mom on that Monday night. And even though he's never admitted it actually to this day, but, um, And this, these events happened in 1991, um, but because there, uh, my dad never admitted to it. And um, when the court, when the police interviewed my dad, and he didn't, he denied it. And so, in addition, her body was never found along with any murder weapon, and her car ended up being found, um, interestingly, at the um, uh, the flyaway park and ride for the airport, which. I believe my dad um, staged there. Um, for one, uh, there was no evidence found at all of like anything from her in the car at the time, which almost shows that my dad might have cleaned out the car. Um, being a police officer, he was aware of like the chain of evidence and things like that. So I think he actually planned that and set her car there, which she never took a flyaway, which is weird. We'd always have friends take us to the airport. But it made for his story. It made for his story and alibi to make sense. And this alleged phone call, or multiple phone calls from the airport, which was weird because he actually had it set up to go to an answering machine or something. So I don't know how this worked, but I believe he was setting this up to make it look like she flew away. Yet, strangely, as thorough as she was with everything, which is the reason I brought that up, during those last from that Monday night through Friday when she supposedly flew on the airplane, she never contacted a single person. And if she never said goodbye to us, she never, she was in close contact with her sister and a couple of her uh, nieces uh, with everything going on because she was leaving my dad and she was a little nervous about it. I mean, he was an ex police officer and she felt threatened that he might do something. And I believe her, her, 
her feeling to be scared ended up being true. And then sadly, she wasn't cautious enough um, of what he was capable of. And some, and they, we don't have evidence, but, and that's why it was a circumstantial case, which is actually crazy because it didn't act, it was ended up being a cold case. So it didn't actually go to court until I, around 2016. So for around 15 years or so, it was a uh, cold case. And they had a lot of detectives on the case throughout the years, but nothing to go to trial until finally my aunt and uncle, my mom's sister and her husband, helped convince the prosecutors to take it to court because there was enough circumstantial evidence and at the time to um, make a, re a reasonable case. And thankfully, the prosecution took them up on that. And I think they, they ended up taking it to court um, around, this was like late 2016. And I was 26 at that time. So this span between 11 and 26, um, it was when the trial finally took place. You were 26 in 2016? I was, uh, oh, I'm sorry, uh, 36. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so wait, let me see what happened here. No, I'm sorry. It was 2006. Sorry. Gotcha. So I was 26. Yeah. 2006 is when it finally went to court from 1991. So it had the, um, yeah, a 15-year gap from there. Sorry, it would have been 25 years together. But um, yeah, so it ended up being from uh, at from 2006, they had the court case, and just uh, one thing led to another. My dad was ended up being found guilty, and if you know anything about the courts, from what I understand, that's not an easy thing to be found guilty in a California court case with 12 jurors, and I think the case was fair, and it was, you know, uh, even though I'm seeing my dad go to jail for 25 years at this point, but I think justice was served ultimately, even though I was leading up to it, I was very, I, I was not sure that my dad did it, but um, all this it made conversations awkward with him. But prior to the, the court case happening and interacting with my dad, he would once in a while ask me, Glenn, do you actually think I killed your, I killed your mom? <laughs> Imagine a very awkward. Uh, <laughs> um, I can't imagine that. So you, you lived with your dad then from how long was he held when she disappeared? He wasn't held um, at all. He was questioned, um, you know, for an hour or two here or there. In 91, so from 91 to 2006, you guys lived together and he raised yeah. you. Yes. And then in 2007, he went to prison for 25 years for the murder of your mother. Yeah, late 2006, yep. Mm -hmm. I think it was September 2006, he was, uh, was convicted of it and began his 25 to life sentence at that point. Um, and when, and so, yeah, it, that's the crazy thing. Like, so we, you know, knew him. I went on trips, cr a bunch of trips with him. You know, we went on a trip to Calcutta, India together um, during college. We went to um, Hungary together. He's, he visited me in Australia when I was there. So, yeah, we, we've like, in my adult years, we, we, we had spent a lot of time together um, and we were pretty close. You know, I wanted to develop my relationship with him despite this huge like wall in a sense in our relationship where it was kind of like out, not out of bounds territory, but it was this uh, taboo thing almost where like, Oh, by the way, like uh, you might've, you might've killed my mom, by the way, dad, you know, <laughs> was that always there? Did you always have a piece of you that wasn't convinced? Yeah, there was, there was always a piece that, that piece actually, the piece of me that thought he might've done it grew throughout the years because as I be grew up to be in, into adulthood, you know, I was like looking rationally 
and logically at like the situation and the way my dad, um, his personality, um, I got to know his personality and the way he is and the way he handled it. And it, it just didn't add up to me and his testimony during in the court and the way his attitude was and how he wasn't want very willing to talk about it not because like oh it was just a tough thing i think he played it off like that but um yeah understanding that and helped me to see that something was off and at the minimum something was off okay it didn't necessarily mean he killed her but like you know but then once i looked at the way he testified to claim he hung out with her a couple times afterwards and then he talked with her on the phone like well if if she really was just on a vacation i kind of at the time um uh, during the trial nbc um uh newsline i think it was did a whole story on this and i think it still periodically airs i'll get friends saying like oh i saw your you talking and your parents case, my your dad's case on on the tv i think just a few months ago it was on like the oprah channel or some kind of channel like that but um and it pops up and uh, what happened was is that uh oh, so i lost my train of thought but basically um i always thought that like he could have been innocent but then it just oh yeah for mb for the mbc i drew up a powerpoint slide saying look i want to look at all the options and i put it on like a uh on this list of all the different possibilities of all the different scenarios that could have been reasonably happened based on my dad's testimony of saying that he met with her you know afterwards and she just mysteriously disappeared then so if my dad's telling the truth coming out from that perspective what could have happened and like if he was telling the truth that means he talked with her but she must have gone crazy because she didn't dis discuss she only talked with him suddenly the guy she was scared of and she's running away from she only spoke with him multiple times afterwards but she didn't even come home to say hi the apartment that they found wasn't touched from monday from what the detective found they found a bobbly pizza still like out on the counter open and these little pieces of evidence those little kind of details that all mm -hmm by themselves wouldn't be a big deal, right? Like anything, but cumulatively, they made a strong, stronger and stronger case against him. And throughout the years, I the detectives couldn't share all this with me. So throughout the years, I learned bits and pieces more. And at the trial itself that I was able to attend, that kind of locked it in for me. Like, oh my gosh, there's a mountain of evidence, although circumstantial and the no bloody weapon, no murder weapon with his DNA on it and no body, but I, believe that my dad had the ability to hide the body and bury her whatever something with her and because he would have had access to that because i believe he did have access to her car because the her white car her car that we had was parked somewhere so she either did that afterwards you know and not making any amount of communication with anyone and she had back in that day there was like an m they had mci had a calling card she would make tons of calls to her people to help her out coordinate this divorce and everything to the divorce lawyer um and then suddenly after monday night every single call on that calling card that she would have had at that point ended it ceased every thing to show that she was alive on the face of the earth ended and that's how the prosecutors framed it and i was like uh yeah i buy this that makes sense and for my dad's story to be true all of these things where she would have had to gone she would have had to like suddenly had a total shift in like 
not wanting to speak with any of us, only my dad. My dad said he gave her $20,000 cash um, to go on this trip and think about things. There's no record of flights, itineraries that she left from LAX, from Los Angeles to do this. So everything besides my dad's testimony, um, everything else made sense that she died on that Monday. And since my dad's testimony, which I think is biggest failure, he could have maybe kept it a secret if he didn't say that he talked, spoke with her after that. He should have just said she left. Something happened. I don't know. After Monday, then he could have got off the hook and maybe gotten innocent. But because he said he spoke with her um, personally in person two days after and then on uh, spoke with her over the phone multiple days after that kind of then took out any other possibility of anything else happening. So all to say, yeah, the, the trial happened. I testified, which is like the most nerve wracking thing. Cause I was trying to not say my dad was guilty, <laughs> like, or like not make him more guilty than he should have been. I was trying to be kind of even handed, but the prosecuting lawyer was this guy, John Lewin, who never lost a case. And he was a bulldog. And he's like, Oh, I won't go after you hard, but he kind of had to, to do his job. And he went after me real hard. And I would, <laughs> I just got hung up. Uh, on answering his questions and he's he, you know he'd do the whole like classic like so you have a college degree correct like do you understand my questions because <laughs> i had to i, I oh, had yeah. to ask him to repeat it and it was just like the most stress ever but i'm glad in the end that he did that to me although at the time because he was thinking i was defending my dad which maybe in a way i kind of was i just didn't want to make him guilty if he wasn't i just trying to be fair but he was trying to get my um testimony of making him seem innocent, like uh, thrown out. So that's kind of what was going on. There was kind of lawyer stuff going on. But basically, I'm glad in, the, in the, even though it seemed like I was trying to protect him, um, in the end, I was actually felt like it was a fair trial and that justice was served in the end. And it was an emotional roller coaster because my sisters were just like, like having a real tough time, like testifying too, as you can imagine, like it was just real emotional for all of us. Um, Cause my aunt and uncle were like hardcore wanting to get my dad into justice. Cause they felt like major convinced that he was guilty. And they were the ones that your mom had come to in private. Yeah. And they were pushing from day one that like, it was something was wrong. You know, they had to file the missing persons. My dad didn't do it back in the day. You know, it's like, he didn't know that they had gone, they had been in contact with your mom prior. So he didn't understand how bad it would have looked that they, he was the only one in contact with her. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so it, that, yeah, that aspect of it really messed up his case. So I, I can't imagine. So at the moment, maybe not at that moment, but throughout this process, like, did it just dynamite your whole perception of what your childhood was like did it did it cause some deep fissures in your identity i mean growing up with someone who essentially was not forthcoming ever in the last 15 or so years with you and that was your sole parent and provider was what did that do yeah i mean it definitely hit me at after the trial there was a level of oh man a wave of feeling uh, you know, he lied to me those years, but that's why having that skepticism was maybe helped me from completely getting screwed up mentally afterwards, because I, I left that spot for him that he could have been guilty. And I, in my mind, I'm like, it looks pretty bad. I'm going to tell him, uh, you know, that I think you're, 
you could be guilty, but in my heart, I knew that there's probably a good chance because this seems weird. Like it just doesn't make sense. So I left room, um, guarding my heart in a sense that I left room that he could have been. So it didn't hit me as hard when the day came and it, it was crazy. Like the gavel came down and like, we have found you guilty, sir. You know, and my dad started crying, you know, and I, I ran, rushed back because they you only give you a couple hours warning that when they're going to do when the uh, jurors concluded. And I had to rush back from work because I lived in Pasadena at the time to uh, get to L.A. to be at the trial. And I, right when I walk in, literally two minutes later, the jury, you know, he says the thing. My dad's wearing the orange jumpsuit and he's crying. And my aunt and uncle are like cheering and a lot of the other my mom's side of the family. And it's just, it was, it's a, that was aspect was surreal. And, but I think it did help because it's like, well, Hey, he took my mom's life and yes, he is my dad. But like, I feel like part of it too, that makes sense is that I left it open where I was being observant. I've been observant of him scrutinizing kind of how he does things. And <laughs> he has this crazy story. And like, I'm like, and, and to this day, I'll, I will say, I, I do love my dad still, and I, I'm open to forgiving him. He hasn't um, accepted guilt for this yet, and he and it's his right to. So I, it's one of these, I've come to the place where I have my hand out saying, the forgiveness is here for you, but if he doesn't accept it, then I can't fully give it to him because he's not there, you know. Um, do you have contact with him? Yeah, and we've, I've actually, he's turned a corner. He's been a lot more, <clears throat> become over... The years after the court, he was still pretty brutal and nasty in terms of my mom's um, my mom's estate afterwards and the financial thing. And he drew a he made a wedge between my sisters, one of my sisters, and myself and my other sister by treating us not fairly. So that was a big wedge, and uh, it ended up coming back to bite him when once his probate lawyers wanted to get paid up. It was just a nasty situation. And um, all to say his, he has been consistent with the way he, his personality and his, in the immoral aspects of him with kind of being cheating and going, going for his own all these years. And in that aspect, I see it makes completely sense. He's being, if he's trying to cheat his children out of some of, you know, his ex-wife's, you know, estate, that seems consistent because I feel like that's the way he's been before 1991. That was his mentality of like not wanting to lose half of his wealth. And he's working hard. Mom's just at home raising the kid. Like he would lose half of his financial investments if my mother left him and not mm -hmm. have his kids as often at all. And he did what was best suited for him, what he felt at that time. And he made, it was a crime of passion. And I do believe it was a one-time thing. He's not like going to do anything like this ever again. He did not do anything else like on that level of um, do anything bad to that level. That's why living with him was a little weird, but I might never felt like, oh, he's going to get me next. You know, even if I said he was guilty, there was a little bit of like awkward, but it's not like I felt like, oh, if I say he's guilty, he's going to go after me with a knife, you know? Um, I just felt like he was kind of honestly a broken man after that in the sense where now he had this lie, he had to keep it up the rest of his life and he's screwed in that sense where he, he's forced into this mess that he's gotten himself into. So I almost at this point, and even now he's spent every penny he has on all of his retirement funds, which 
apparently courts can't touch that stuff. <laughs> Police and school teachers' um, pensions can't be touched, even if you're in jail for life for killing wow. your spouse. So he's um, he's he's getting funded to hire <laughs> detectives and lawyers for a million appeals cases, which are have been unsuccessful. But you never know. I'm open if if he has an appeals case <laughs> that is seems legitimate that he didn't kill my mom, not because of technicalities, which he may or may not be going after. Like I'm after like if, if he could show me evidence, I'm open to it, you know, because there there wasn't I wasn't like hundred percent proof that he was found guilty. He was found guilty in a court of law, but um, you know, they make the you know, they make mistakes sometimes. Um I don't think they did, but if there's proof otherwise, great. And so um, we'll see what happens there, but it's been what 2006, and now it's 2021. So he's been in jail for 15 years now, and still hardcore on the case. To he's become one of those like inmate lawyer <laughs> attorney guys for himself, learning a lot about the law. But um, but for me, I'm just to kind of wrap things up sooner than later. Like I'm at peace with a lot of that, um, and I felt like yes, he's been lying to me, but it's been consistent with his personality, like I said, and, um, you know what, let's just, um, again, it's like, it is what it is at this point. You kind of got your justice. I feel like he's in jail. If it's one thing, if he wasn't found in jail, it'd be harder for me to say like, Oh, water under the bridge, but he's serving his time and he's doing what he thinks is right. Although I think he's psychologically got himself to a place where he's convinced himself he's innocent there. I think there's almost an argument to say where someone is that, in debt, like he might mentally be at that place where I can't even convince him, you know, like, cause I say like, well, what if, what if, if you say you're guilty, they'll let you out when you hit that 25 year mark or, you know, like, and then you don't have to try to post bail, like, or even now, if they said they'll let you go, if you say you're guilty. And interestingly, he said, no, no, I'm not, you know, I'm, I would never know. Like, cause I'm not guilty. I'd stay in jail longer. You know, like, of course he mm -hmm. said that if the day came, who knows, but um, so wow. yeah, it's just one of those interesting, like it becomes this weird, interesting psychological thing. And like, you know, uh, then that's where it is. But I'm, I feel like at this point, just trying to make the most of it. We have weekly phone calls like, uh, on Friday where I chat with him from the prison. And, um, I actually haven't even visited him for like 11 years, uh, like eight years. He was up Northern California, but now he's pretty close. He's in, uh, uh Chino area prison california prison there and um even if without covid stuff like i probably wouldn't visit him i'm open to it but he with the phone calls we get to chat you know um uh, more than enough and um but uh he's doing well and i'm like hoping the best for him it's kind of like we just we don't talk about it at this point so much and he knows i still think he's guilty and he says you know he claims his side of it and okay, that's that. Anyways, uh, next, let's talk about the weather then. Mm -hmm. What's going on? And is it kind of surreal? It is a little bit like, and it's weird. Like, hey, kids, talk to your grandpa, <laughs> you know, and yeah. th their other grandpa passed away a few years ago. So this is the only grandpa left, you know, and they, and so it's just weird. Like, uh, they never really met him. My oldest daughter, who's 12 now, met him when she was like two, and they don't remember him. So, and it's he, he doesn't have much of a desire to even see them. It's like, well, okay, fine with me. I mean, it's a real pain to go to a prison. <laughs> so yeah. it's um that works for me. And he enjoys the phone calls. And he's been actually more financially generous these past 
few months. And it's a so when I mentioned earlier that he's taken a turn to corner, where I think that was a big problem for him, where he felt he had to control that financially and with our a lot of the finance stuff. And so I feel like he's been more generous um, lately and understanding. So I don't know. I'm hopeful, even though, you know, always hopeful he'll accept the forgiveness from my open hands for the, the case. But um, it's difficult to imagine that after 15 years. But um, but maybe if not that, at least we'll, you know, agree to disagree. And, um, you know, I, I love him and I tell him I love him and he's aware of that. And it's just a weird thing to think that he's guilty, but still be loving him. It's it's weird. And I won't be I won't be totally honest if I don't say that at certain times, especially in the past when we were having arguments about financial issues and during the probate and figuring out the estate, uh, my mom's will and all that. It was like, oh man, I was really, I got pissed at him and like we had problems because I was like, felt he was just being so greedy about things and like he already did enough damage and now he's doing this, you know, and it kind of yeah. like things started to boil up in like, man, maybe, you know, of like, you know, feeling mad about him, like doing that to my mom and like things came back again. But yeah, since then, since it's been better, like maybe time heals all wounds, right? I don't know. It's, uh, but I think, you know, being able to have a level of forgiveness was key. And I think like, you know, some element of like, uh, like walking with Christ and my Christian faith has like aided towards that. And mm -hmm. I, but I think it, 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 that's not an, an essential thing. I think people it's, you know, like let any, it doesn't take, you know, walking, knowing Jesus to like, obviously it's like a common sense or to a certain degree to like be able to love people and forgiveness is something anyone can do. And like, um, for me, that's what, you know, definitely helped me and gave me a good, you know, understanding how Jesus handled things, helped me give me a good foundation. And so that I was able to use that. And that was a Jesus was a great model so that I was able to use that. But um, yeah, so that's one thing. And it's it's important, I think, too, to be strong for the rest of your family, for my two sisters and um, giving the interview for NBC, being able to do that back in the day was actually very helpful for me to let it all out, um, to get it out in the open, to express things. So talking like this, even it's, I think I, um, enjoy it in the only, in the sense where it helps me hash things out. And sometimes even like, you know, someone like you, the questions you ask and other people I talk to about like help open things up and kind of able to get it out. Cause I think when you hold things in on that, this, importance in something in your life, you know, like that just builds stress and to wrap every, anything back at all, like to the aspect of like racing and on an athlete and training or as a person in general, like holding in any amount of stress, like whatever it does to your cortisol levels, like it wouldn't be a good thing. So I think overall, like being able to just be extra open with things like this, because then if you could talk about this, <laughs> you could talk about, oh, like, you know, not doing something right on the Spartan course, or, you know, um, it makes those kind of things a lot easier. So, um, yeah, I think that's um, why speaking, talking about these things is a good thing. Well, I'm, I appreciate you doing that. It's meeting you prior to knowing your story. I thought this guy is an incredible guy. He's a family man. He's successful in his business, but he is just a genuinely happy, outgoing friendly person and then you find out things you've been through and you realize what is my excuse you know i think that's a great take home for people is 
if Glenn can come out the other side with this outward facing persona, like what's, what's my excuse? Mm. And it's, mm. it, it, every time we talk to someone who's gone through something beyond normal, it frames, what is my excuse? Mm. But my, my final curiosity about this, and I mean, this is the kind of thing you could go any number of ways, but this seems to have, the court case seems to have happened about the time you made your shift to running. Did this fuel your passion as an outlet at that point? Um, or is it I just coincidence? It, it was 50% coincidence, but also partly, I think, indirectly, it ended up helping because... Dude, like this is that's a very big. Um, uh, we didn't have close. I didn't have closure. Like the closure mm-hmm. aspect was huge, because you know, imagine like, okay, my dad kind of maybe did this, and you know, and dude, what happened to your mom? You know, what happened to my mom? And back of my head, that closure and that b- having a piece, not just the court happened, but then having a piece about it, like, man, like, good job court system, you know, and good job NBC, because I think they did a good job explaining it and like sometimes news casters can like um make someone seem overly like oh my dad was hitler and my mom was you know was an angel but like the reality is yes my mom was having an affair but that didn't just let her deserve to be killed you know and um everyone i spoke to and interacted with this like put it out in a good light so in the end i came out feeling after speaking with family, working with NBC, going through the courts as like hellish as it was at the time, came out being like, man, this was closure was great for me as a person. And for any issue, when you have that type of closure, like that makes then, okay, now I could go on and like continue doing what I was doing. I probably would have run pretty much pretty similar and like got into the whatever I was doing as well, married kids, continue with it. But it just makes that much more. You have like less of a thing in the background going on. I always take it as the example of like, if you have some, like, I remember in elementary school, I have some, an oral book report and I feared it. It was always this thing in the back of your head and it stressed you out because I wasn't prepared and it's coming in a few weeks, but, or, you know, I have a presentation for work or something like when you have, when you don't have that thing haunting you in the background, and and it just makes for overall everything in life so yeah it definitely spilled out into running training relationship with my wife we're able to like talk about it that situation and even for more peace and actually being married actually interestingly i only got married in august 2006 and this happened actually he was arraigned like before august so this was all happening like or no right or right around then and um we actually got married in my backyard of my house in Valencia, where we grew up. A week or two after, <laughs> they dug up the backyard because the detectives, I believe, went to psychics and they had guesses that my dad buried my mom in the backyard. So they had huge chunks of the grass in our little backyard pulled out. And even I think in the cement, they ripped it, portions of it out. So when we had our wedding ceremony, when we walked down the aisle, the aisle had to be patched because the grass was recently pulled out and there's chunks of dirt with like something so that they wouldn't like step over these like mounds where they recently tried to dig up my supposedly, you know, murdered mom on the, that area. Goes to show how fresh it was at that time. That is that is wild. Yeah. So that that happened. And um, <laughs> but um, but yeah, so it I had 
ultimately being married during that period was really, really good to talk through it. Like that's, it's, it's stressful to get <laughs> cross-examined by uh, uh, an attorney on the prosecutor's case. Who's, I was sort of on his side as well, but he at that time didn't think, I mean, man, and he's never lost a case. That dude, that's not something I wish for that to happen to many people. Cause uh, you know, I have race anxiety, but getting cross-examined, man, that's, that's rough. <laughs> So, yeah. I, I can't imagine one second of that story. A childhood growing up with kids are brutal. And if they're not brutal, they're genuinely curious. Like to grow through childhood with the constant whispers or questions or interactions, and then to go through the interaction with your father, not totally knowing if you trust him, and then going through mm. the court case while seeking closure, but also getting married. Like not one section of that can I imagine someone going through and coming out the way you've come out it's 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 truly incredible mm, thanks man yeah it's and since then it's been crazy because i thought for a while i'm like oh dude that's that's crazy you know like oh man i i that happened to me and then you know and it, it it's it's i mean much we've had friends who've had other like crazy things happen too and it, it definitely puts in perspective where like there can be much worse like because nothing actually happened to me. I wasn't mm -hmm. abused physically, sexually, and like emotionally to a certain degree, like a little bit. But, you know, like and when you hear of other things that happen, like it, it helps, too, because it's like, yeah, that was that was rough. But like, it, you know, um, when things like that happen to other people, and I, I guess it helps to be um, what's the word? Is it empathetic towards other people who've had actually had that happen? And even though I'm to certain stories I've heard. I mean, my thing's only 1%, and, you know, and you read stuff like the Gulag Archipelago and what those guys in the Russian Gulags had to go through. And it's like, you know, Nazi Germany. I mean, it's like, it's, it's, it's interesting how like, oh my gosh, that's like 0.1%. But um, yeah, I mean, it definitely helps you. And like, whatever it is, whether you're getting through a 24 hour Spartan race, be like, this ain't nothing, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and like this, this is doable, whether you're that mindset of just like making it through or getting through a five minute, really hard interval, <laughs> you know, like, uh, and like not thinking you can do it and kind of quitting midway through, you know, it's like those kind of things can, those things, yeah, they can mentally give you that like extra support that you, you can, you know, just, yeah, trying to link it to, you know, uh, like athletically and how certain things have, um, how you, how you can grow through going through things like that. I've always respected you, but every time I hear a piece of this, my respect grows, Glenn. <laughs> appreciate you listening and asking and uh, uh, letting me hang out with you for a little bit, man. <laughs> yeah, well, thanks for giving us so much of your time. Thank your wife. I haven't seen you guys in years. <laughs> it's crazy, Hopefully yeah. Hopefully this year we can, we can meet up at our race. I won't even recognize your kids anymore at this point. <laughs> ditto, ditto. All right. Well, Kirk says thank you. I say thank you. Thanks right. for coming on and good luck this weekend. By the time this drops, you'll be 24 hours from race day. I'm excited to see you out there. Yeah. Appreciate it, man. And hope to see you soon.